morning, everyone. We're so glad you're with us. Hi, Don. Hi, Caitlin. You're not uh, with us. I miss you. <laughs> you're I'm, you're I'm glad they're you with us, spirit. but not you. <laughs> I'm with you in spirit in a beautiful, balmy Atlanta. We're here for an interview on assignment that we'll talk about a little bit later, but there is a lot going on this morning. So let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, April 6th. Former Vice President Mike Pence cleared to testify in the Justice Department's January 6th investigation. Pence announced he will not appeal a judge's order. And San Francisco police investigating the stabbing death of Cash App founder Bob Lee. No suspect has been named. Also today, the Tennessee House is planning a vote to expel three of its Democratic members. Republicans want them out for violating House rules during a gun reform protest. Also, Israeli forces raiding Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque for a second time, just hours apart, actually. Palestinian officials report that at least six people have been injured. And set to tee off, the Masters are playing host to golf's biggest stars, as many are heading to Augusta today to get a glimpse of Tiger Woods. Seen it this morning starts right now. Poppy, you're really going to the Masters, aren't you? That's why I, you're I there. I heard you. <laughs> I wish. I've never been to the Masters, but maybe I will stay and I will go. No, we're here uh, in Atlanta and happy to be here with, this is the home of CNN. Ted Turner's house is right below me mm-hmm. in our, and we're all around that, so that's pretty cool. I'm here to interview uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon a little bit later today. Looking forward to it because this is his first interview where he's really spoken out since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and this whole banking crisis. So we'll get his candid thoughts on that as they're opening a big community branch right here in Atlanta. So that's why I'm here, but I miss you guys. Oh, we miss you too. We miss you too. But we got a lot to get to right now. We do, we do. Uh, After months of pushing back, it looks like Mike Pence might finally testify in the special counsel's investigation of former President Donald Trump. Pence's spokesman says he will not appeal a judge's order to appear before the grand jury investigating the January 6th Capitol attack and Trump's efforts to overturn that election. This means that Pence could potentially testify under oath about conversations he had one-on-one with Trump leading up to that day. So let's bring in senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reid. This is certainly precedent setting and it's never happened before if he does this. That's right, Poppy. This could be a historic moment if Pence is able to testify about the pressure campaign that he faced from the former president and his allies to block Biden's victory. This has been something that investigators have been particularly interested in as they investigate the events leading up to January 6th. This would be the first time that he's participating in an investigation uh, against uh, the former president. Now, there is, though, some carve-outs. There are some carve-outs here for him. There are some exceptions. Specifically, he will not have to testify about anything related to his work as president of the Senate on January 6th. And that was a very important carve out for him, a constitutional concern that he raised in his arguments. Let's take a listen to what he said about how he sees this judge's decision. I'm very pleased uh, that a federal judge for the very first time recognized that the Constitution's speech and debate protections apply to the Vice President of the United States when you're serving as President of the Senate. Uh, That was the core of my concern about the subpoena being brought. 
So he's Bumber. choosing to frame this as a win in terms of his constitutional challenge because they did give him that carve out. So he won't have to answer any questions about exactly what he was doing at the Senate on January 6th. But in the weeks and months leading up to that, that will potentially be fair game for investigators, unless, of course, the former president appeals this on executive privilege grounds. But I'm told, Poppy, that is unlikely because so far they have not been successful in those challenges. And right now it's right. unclear exactly when Pence will testify. Right. And executive privilege doesn't always apply. Um, so but just before you go, Paula, we've also learned that national security officials have testified that former President Trump was warned not just once, not twice, repeatedly that he was not allowed to seize voting machines after he lost the election. What do you know about that testimony? Well, Poppy, this is some great new reporting from our colleague, Zach Cohen, who has learned that multiple top Trump administration officials have testified. Again, former President Trump was warned that he did not have the authority to seize voting machines. Now, his former attorney general, Bill Barr, has previously spoken publicly about Trump's interest in potentially seizing voting machines. Let's take a listen to what he said. My recollection is the president said something like, uh, well, we could get to the bottom. You know, some people say we could get to the bottom of this if if the department sees the machines. It was a typical way of raising a point. And I said, absolutely not. There's no probable cause and we're not going to seize any machines. This issue has been of particular interest to investigators, and this new reporting once again gives us a window into what's going on behind closed doors with the special counsel's grand jury. Yeah, quite a window. Paula, thank you for the reporting on both those fronts. Don. All right, Poppy and Paula. Well, this morning, lawmakers in Tennessee are set to vote on expelling three of their Democratic colleagues from the state house. Republicans accused the three Democrats of breaking House rules when they led this protest for gun reform on the chamber floor just a week ago. So yesterday on CNN This Morning, Justin Jones, one of the lawmakers facing potential expulsion, slammed Republicans. It's morally insane that a week after a mass shooting took six precious lives in my community here in Nashville, um, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, their first action is not to take action to rein in this proliferation of weapons of war in our streets, but it's to expel their colleagues for standing with our constituents. Live for us this morning in Nashville, CNN national reporter Ryan Young. Ryan, good morning to you. What is the latest? Yeah, good morning, Don. Look, it's running like cats and dogs here. And I tell you, the emotions are just sort of overflowing here in Nashville. People have been talking about this for the last week in terms of what do they do with these three lawmakers? You can understand this community is hurting after that shooting. And so many people have so much passion. They've been coming to the state house and saying, look, they want some sort of reform. But Republicans say the three Democrats took this way too far by going on the House floor and they want something done. Of course, Republicans are in the majority. Now, when you speak to some Democrats, including the folks in the NAACP, they say getting rid of the three lawmakers is a step too far. They believe they were showing passion and trying to get some common sense gun reform. But when you talk to the other side, they say this is about decorum at the state capitol and that the three lawmakers took this too far. And today we could see this happen, Don, because a lot of people believe the Republicans have some momentum in terms of putting some pressure on these Democrats. So, Ryan, let me ask you about Representative Justin Jones filing a police report over an incident on the floor. Remind us of what happened, please. 
Yeah, and I, we're going to show you this video in a second, Dob, but when you think about the emotions in this, and of course, anytime you bring something to the gun debate, you know emotions can sort of get really high. Well, take a look at what happened with a cell phone and some tussling right on that house floor. John, what a mess. So Justin Jones believes he was knocked down. He wants to pull out a warrant on this other lawmaker. So you have Justin Jones, Gloria Johnson, and Justin Pearson all pushing for it, hoping they keep their seat. Folks in, who are living in this area that we've even talked to just last night were telling us they believe some of this is taking away from what they should be talking about, which is the six lives that were lost and the heroic actions of the police officers on that day. But instead, we're going back and forth. Everyone in, is in their party corners fighting to see if these three lawmakers will keep their seats. Oh, Don. my gosh. Chaos. Ryan Young, thank you very much. In a rainy Nashville this morning. Caitlin. Yeah, and as we continue to track what is happening in Nashville, also on the international front overnight, Israeli forces clashed with Palestinians for the second time at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque. This follows a violent raid less than 24 hours earlier that drew widespread condemnation from the Arab world. Israeli police fired stun grenades and rubber bullets. They ultimately arrested more than 300 Palestinians. CNN's Hadass Gold is live in Jerusalem. Hadass, I know you've been tracking all of this. Uh, of course, all of this is coming as Passover is happening. What are you hearing and what's the expectation if there is going to be more violence potentially? Well, okay. Yeah, Caitlin, the week-long Passover holiday just began. Of course, we're still in the middle of Ramadan. The kindling is still very much there and very much dry for another light of the fire. As you noted, in less than 24 hours, Israeli police now twice raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque, this entire compound, of course, that you can see behind me, the Golden Dome of the Rock. That is the third holiest site in Islam and, of course, even more sensitive during Ramadan. It is The area is also known as Temple Mount to Jews and is the holiest site in Judaism. But the Israeli police once again raiding the site for similar reasons as to why they did it the night before. They said that dozens of what they called juveniles were barricading themselves inside and were trying to set off fireworks and throw stones. But from videos we're seeing overnight, we see that it was much busier with a much more, you know, wide array of worshippers who were inside the mosque while this happened. There are some allegations also that the Israeli police entered before the prayers were even over. We know from the Palestinian Red Crescent Society that at least six people were injured. So not as many injuries or arrests as what we saw the night before. We're also hearing from Palestinian officials that most of those who were arrested uh, the other night have now been released. But then again, overnight, we saw more rockets fired from Gaza. Militants there saying that this was in direct response to what's happening in Jerusalem. No injuries were reported once again on other side. But it goes just to show you the reverberations of what happens here, especially at the holy sites, how it not only has reverberations across this region, but across the Arab world. Uh, now, the Israeli military says that they are not interested in an escalation, they say, but they are prepared for one. I don't really believe that there will be an escalation to the levels of what we saw in 2021 when similar clashes at Al-Aqsa erupted into that 11-day war. But with the things, the way they're happening here, we have to really watch the momentum and it really could spiral into something further.
Caitlin. Yeah, you can clearly see how things are changing so quickly, especially at such a time as Ramadan and Passover. Hadass Gold in Jerusalem, thank you for that. Also this morning, there are new tensions amid threats from China that are coming after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy defied Beijing, saying he didn't need to follow what their suggestions were. He met with Taiwan's president in California. Also, Vladimir Putin sending a new warning to America coming up. What he told the new U.S. ambassador will take you live to Moscow. This morning, a group of both Democrats and Republican lawmakers have just landed in Taiwan hours after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy himself met with Taiwan's president on American soil. That was in California, but this comes as China is now promising to take action. Speaker McCarthy, though, pushing back on Beijing after his historic summit at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. Well, my first message to China, there's no need for retaliation. But the one thing I would say to China, too, at no time, I am the Speaker of the House. There is no place that China is going to tell me where I can go or who I can speak to, whether you be foe or whether you be friend. Now, it is not often that McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi agree, but Pelosi, who made her own trip to Taiwan recently, commended McCarthy's meeting, saying that it is to be committed for its leadership, bipartisan participation, and distinguished and historic venue. All of this is coming as this morning Taiwan's defense ministry says that it has detected Chinese warships around the island after that meeting happened. They're also keeping a close eye on this Chinese aircraft carrier strike group as it is passing nearby. These are photos that were taken just yesterday. Back in August, as we know, China launched massive military drills. They fired missiles near Taiwan because they were so angry over Pelosi's visit to the self-governing island. Joining us now is CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox, who is on Capitol Hill, and our CNN correspondent Selena Wang, who is in Beijing. Selena, obviously, we're seeing China saying they are going to take resolute and strong measures after this meeting that McCarthy had. What are we expecting those to look like? Well, look, there's been a lot of tough talk coming from China. They've repeatedly condemned this visit. And that's not a surprise because Beijing reacts furiously every time Taiwanese leaders have these sorts of high profile international meetings. And that's because Beijing sees Taiwan as a breakaway province that is part of its territory. So this is what China's foreign ministry said after the meeting, quote, China will take resolute and strong measures to firmly defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The U.S. and Taiwan are colluding with each other, using transit as a pretext to condone Taiwan independent separatists to engage in political activities in the U.S. But so far, when it comes to the actual response on the ground, Caitlin, China has been far more restrained. Wednesday morning, Beijing sent a large-scale patrol and rescue vessel to the Taiwan Strait. Then Wednesday evening, Taiwan tracked a Chinese aircraft carrier group passing through the waters of southeast Taiwan. That response is far less than how China reacted last summer when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Now, part of that reason is because this trip is taking place on American soil, not in Taiwan. Beijing has also been trying to reconnect with the world after dropping its harsh zero COVID policy. So it may not want to overshadow its diplomatic role with war games, Caitlin. All right, so that is from China. Lauren, let's talk about what's happening with U.S. officials and their response. What are they saying, uh, responding to these? How are they responding to these China threats? 
Well, I mean, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy yesterday was defiant. You heard him there saying that China, no friend, no foe, is going to tell him where he can go. And there was an especially revealing moment yesterday during the press conference in which McCarthy was asked, would he ever go to Taiwan? He said he has no plans to visit that country right now, but he does say that he's not going to be told whether he can go or not go. And he emphasized that if he went, he would want to do it on a bipartisan basis. It's so important to remember yesterday the symbolism of having Republicans and Democrats standing behind the House Speaker in support for Taiwan. McCarthy underscored a few logistics that he's going to continue fighting to transfer arms to Taiwan, as well as supporting their economic growth. He also made it clear that this is something that Republicans and Democrats agree on. It is such a divide up here on Capitol Hill when it comes to domestic issues like immigration, like investigations. On this issue, McCarthy emphasized, as well as Democrats who spoke yesterday, that this is something that Congress and the White House has to be united on. They feel as though this is the best way to show strength for the country. And I think that that was really the whole tone of yesterday's summit out in California. Don? Yeah, a time when you rarely see bipartisanship, especially on something that's notable. And Selena, this isn't the only thing that's happening. Keeping this big picture here, also the top diplomats, foreign ministers from Saudi Arabia and Iran were in Beijing earlier this week. Of course, that comes after China brokered a peace deal, essentially, between them. This is the first meeting where they've gone there in seven years, I believe. This is incredibly significant. Yeah, exactly. This is a huge deal. As you say, this is the first meeting between the highest level bilateral gathering of these officials, the first of its kind in more than seven years. Back in March, the two sides agreed to restore relations after that landmark deal that China brokered. Now, these two sides were previously major adversaries and had severed diplomatic relations in 2016. So this is a big diplomatic win for China. And it's significant here that Washington was on the sidelines, especially since the Middle East has for so long been shaped by American involvement. So at this meeting in Beijing, Saudi Arabia and Iran's foreign minister signed an agreement to reopen embassies and consulates in their countries. And now the big context amid all of this is that it comes as Beijing has been casting Xi Jinping as this global peacemaker, and he has been on a diplomatic role. He is currently meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron in Beijing. He recently mm -hmm. met with Spain's prime minister in Beijing. So while U.S.-China relations may be at this very, very low point, you do see Beijing trying to shore up relations elsewhere. All right, Selena and Lauren, thank you both very much. Of course, as Selena was noting there, the French president is in Beijing this morning. He is meeting with the Chinese president. This matters because French officials say that during this three-day trip, the French president has several goals from stabilizing trade and diplomatic ties with China, but also pushing for peace with Russia. Of course, the latter is the biggest focus of the international community as they are watching with the war in Ukraine. Macron says that he petitioned the Chinese president to use his influence with Putin, saying, quote, he can count on Xi to reason with Russia and bring everyone back to the negotiating table, obviously. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. If with that's that. successful. In the meantime, Russian President Vladimir Putin telling the U.S. ambassador to Moscow that Washington's support for Ukraine in 2014 is to blame for the current conflict and that relations between America and Russia are in, quote, deep crisis. One week after Russian authorities arrested Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovic, accusing him of espionage, the newspaper says that he still 
He still has no consular access. Soon as Matthew Chance joins us now live from Moscow with the very latest. Matthew, hello to you. What else did Putin say to the ambassador about the relationship between the U.S. and Russia? Well, I mean, he made his characterization of the relationship and, and I have to say it was pretty accurate, if a little understated. He uh, said, as you mentioned, that the relationship was in a deep crisis. And he said the reason for that is because they've got different approaches to the, uh, uh, the modern world order, though he didn't specify exactly what he meant. He spoke um, almost directly to uh, Lynn Tracy, who's the newly appointed U.S. ambassador to Moscow. And he basically said, you may not agree with me, uh, but uh, U.S. support for the color revolutions. These are the pro-democracy uprisings in Eastern Europe in the 2000s um, played, a, played a role in that, as did U.S. support uh, for the toppling uh, of the, he called it a coup, by the way, the toppling of the Ukrainian authorities in 2014 in that other pro-Western, uh, pro-democracy rising that led to uh, the, uh, the, the Russian intervention in the country uh, back in uh, 2014. It was quite an awkward little exchange because it wasn't just the United States ambassador there. There were other ambassadors as well presenting their credentials. For instance, to the Danish ambassador, he said, you know, we need to work out who basically uh, attacked the gas pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline last year. And he spoke to the Norwegian ambassador as well, saying that our relationship is, uh, uh, is, is virtually frozen. And so it sort of highlighted the kind of isolated position of the Kremlin at the moment. Yeah, certainly an isolated position, but we know the president of Belarus is in, in Moscow right now meeting with him. We'll keep an eye on that meeting. Matthew Chance, thank you. All right, also this morning, we have more on the former Vice President Mike Pence's decision to not appeal a federal court ruling when it comes to testifying about January 6th and his conversations with Trump. This is significant. How does it change Pence in the 2024 field that he seems to be prepared to enter? That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's your beautiful Atlanta skyline this morning. Happy to be with you. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. We are following a significant development in the Justice Department's January 6th investigation. Former Vice President Mike Pence will not fight a judge's order to testify before a special grand jury. Expect some of that testimony to focus on conversations that he had directly with President Trump in the days and weeks leading up to the insurrection on January 6th. This will be, once again, a precedent-setting historic event. No former vice president has ever complied with a criminal investigation subpoena to testify about a former president's actions. With me now to talk about this and also the probe going on here in Georgia is CNN political commentator and former lieutenant governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, who insists that I can't call him lieutenant governor. That's right, Jeff. Jeff. All right, fine. Jeff. So let's start. How significant for Pence to talk? Granted, there's a carve out here. The judge said there are some things that are protected by the speech or debate clause of the Constitution. But there's a lot he can and, I guess, has to answer. Yeah, I think Mike Pence is going to turn out to be the most important witness that this grand jury gets to hear from, the right? Most. The most. The, the most. I mean, just think about the interesting details that he's got, the conversations that he's had, the insights that he's going to give. I mean, the thousands of questions that could possibly be out there. And I think the other part of this is that he, you know, is, is the perfect witness. He's got all this information and he's got nothing to lose and everything to gain. What about politically for him? It's so interesting because this decision not to fight on appeal the former president may still appeal and try to claim executive privilege, but that doesn't always hold. It's interesting to me that Pence is not going to fight this in terms of what's the political calculation as he and his family decide if he's going to, um, you know, make the, make the leap. 
Yeah, politically speaking, you know, he's got a chance to kind of thread this needle, right? And he's got to do a lot of work to do it, but he can claim the political wins, the conservative policy wins that Donald Trump had, but then separate himself from the chaos that, that Donald Trump has had. And I don't know if he can do it or not. It's going to be a difficult task. Can he task. thread that needle? I mean, that's the needle he's been trying to thread. He did it again in this great interview that our Wolf Blitzer did with him last week. But the thing is, he wrote a book and talks about a lot of things and then didn't agree to talk to Congress about it in their probe. Yeah, there's certainly some confusing decisions made along the way, but he's got a chance to do it. And it's not yeah. to say it's going to be easy, but there's a chance that he can try to pull it off. OK, so let's move on to uh, Georgia and what's happening here. And there are three additional probes happening in addition to the charges we saw in the indictment of Trump in New York. And one of them is right here. It's Fonnie Willis's probe. Uh, and the famous phone call to the Secretary of State's office that Trump made asking them to find the votes. Do you think that what happened in New York, Bragg's indictment, makes Fonnie Willis's job here harder? Yes, certainly. Her job got harder when that indictment came out and folks realized it was much weaker than probably anticipated. That's your opinion. Yeah, that, that's certainly my opinion. And there's more, there's more work to come. But we're not going to really hear the details of the rest of this until December. Um, and so certainly her job got tougher. But this, these but why, why did her job get tougher? Because they're totally separate independent probes. Do you mean tougher in the sort of public opinion sphere? Yeah. Th this stuff, the public opinion sphere does matter, right? And certainly the optics of this does matter. Now, the legalities it of it are still important. legally, right? Well, legally, I think that's her that's her biggest separation. This is her her charges that she's trying to investigate are real, right? Recode statutes, racketeering. These are things that organized crime families have to deal with. Um, and so she's got a real case. I, I'm not worried that if she brings an indictment forward, it will be a swing and miss. I think if Fonnie Willis brings it forward, she's been very methodical, very calculated in this. Um, she's not been in a rush to get it to market. But I have to push back on that. It sounds like you're saying, without saying it, that you think Bragg has been those things. But he, he declined to, to pursue this a year ago in order to take more time on it. Yeah, I think you're you're watching not just Republicans, but even disappointed Democrats that thought that there was going to be more of a case brought forward. Who? I think, Who? well, certainly there's there's a number of folks all across the, the, the ecosystem inside of politics that were thinking that this case in Manhattan was going to be stronger. I think Donald Trump received a tailwind of epic proportion. A tailwind of epic proportion? In and a you primary. Have, you have criticized the Oh, for president. certain. I'm not happy about that. But in the primary, but I think Donald Trump still has a math problem, right? So he's gained this tailwind in the primary process. But his math problem is the 2024 general election, right? All these voters that were with him. Now, he only won by 78,000 votes in three states in 2016. 2018, a week showing in the run, in, in the midterms. 2020, obviously lost. At least I, I feel that. Oh, he lost. Let's Tw be yeah, clear. we agree on that. 22, uh, obviously the midterms were significantly disappointing for the folks that he endorsed. And so those voters aren't coming back to him all of a sudden just because of this Manhattan DA's outcome or, or, or the indictment process. And so he's got a math problem. And that leads to disaster for Republicans like me that want to r run Joe Biden professionally out of the White House. But this made it more likely he'll be the GOP nominee for president. Certainly didn't make it harder for him. And if I'm a Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley or others that are out there thinking about, you know, or obviously really running, uh, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not happy about what's going on. It's a tailwind. And, and like I said earlier, this is yeah. this was probably the largest campaign contribution ever to, to a, somebody running for, for president, this Alan Bragg situation. Wow. We'll watch. There's a lot more we don't know that we will see in the coming months. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you. Absolutely. Good to have you. Guys, back to you. All right. Thanks, Poppy. Uh, this morning, police are searching for the person who stabbed the founder of Cash App to death. Latest in the investigation and how it's reigniting concerns about crime in San Francisco.
A manhunt is underway in San Francisco this morning after police say that the founder of Cash App, Bob Lee, was fatally stabbed on Tuesday morning. Tributes have been pouring in ever since they confirmed his death. He was a well-known 43-year-old tech executive, and business leaders are criticizing the city's approach to public safety in the face of increased crime there after the pandemic. CNN's Veronica Miracle is live in San Francisco. Veronica, I think the big question this morning is, do police, do investigators have any leads as of this moment? Well, Caitlin, some who knew Bob Lee are speculating that this was a random and violent attack. But as of this morning, the San Francisco Police Department has not released any information around the circumstances around his death or any suspect information. A crime scene blocks from Google's San Francisco office. The victim, 43-year-old Bob Lee, a tech executive himself, the founder of Cash App and the first chief technology officer of Square. Lee was stabbed Tuesday, friends and police say, while walking in a downtown neighborhood around 2 a.m. You know, we were both hanging out tomorrow night, so that's a little strange. Um, it like just happens, so my mind's still processing it, you know? When you lose someone, you're just like, damn, this is uh, not expected. I know he had two, uh, two daughters as well that he loved. Lee's father honored his son on Facebook, writing, Bob would give you the shirt off of his back. Bob Lee had recently moved to Miami with his father, who wrote, I'm so happy that we were able to become so close these last years. Lee was known in the industry as Crazy Bob for his tenacious energy. His latest employer, the crypto firm MobileCoin, tweeted this photo, calling Lee a child of dreams and whatever he imagined, no matter how crazy, he made real. This is not a city where anybody should fear for their lives at 2.30 in the morning. The killing has renewed anger in San Francisco over perceptions that the city isn't safe. On Twitter, Elon Musk claimed many people I know have been severely assaulted, then pushed the district attorney to do more to incarcerate repeat violent offenders. And for too long, the leaders of San Francisco have ignored the basics. Joel and Guardio worked on the successful recall campaign of the previous progressive DA last year, then won a city supervisor seat, defeating the incumbent by running on a public safety agenda. Residents are feeling like the city is not working for them, and they just want clean streets, safe streets, and good schools. And they don't understand why the city hasn't been able to deliver. Still, violent crime overall is falling in San Francisco compared to previous decades. This is the 12th homicide this year, according to police data. Baltimore, with fewer people, reports nearly 70. But property crime is high in San Francisco. In 2020, there were more than 4,000 incidents per 100,000 people. That's nearly three times the rate of New York City. Friends of Bob Lee say all that matters now is the one crime that has them in mourning. He's a humble, nice guy. You know, talks about his kids a lot, family. He's just a generally good guy. And Caitlin, San Francisco Mayor London Breed told CNN in a statement this city is committed to public safety. She pointed to a recently passed supplemental budget that increases the number of police officers in local neighborhoods. Caitlin. Yeah. Just an awful, awful story. And to see his dad saying, yeah. you know, he feels like he lost his best friend, which is terrible. Veronica, thank you for that. This morning, our Will Ripley is taking us inside one of the most powerful submarines on the planet, that's on high alert for threats from China. The USS Mississippi, like all of America's nuclear submarines, can essentially uh, sustain itself under the water for weeks or even months at a time because of the nuclear reactor that powers them.
Welcome back now to a CNN exclusive report, an inside look at the cutting edge technology and life on board one of the U.S. nuclear submarines at the center of the U.S., U.K. and Australia's AUKUS pact. The vessels have the world's most elite technology as crew members prepare for the possibility of conflict with China. Our Will Ripley takes us inside. Our journey begins in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, the bustling hub of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, covering almost half the world, 100 million square miles, 1,500 aircraft, and around 200 ships, including more than half of the Navy's nuclear-powered submarines. Today, we're getting an exclusive look inside the USS Mississippi, one of the most powerful warships on the planet. You guys go ahead and head to Welcome aboard. With a crew of around 140 people. Rear Admiral Jeff Jablin is commander of the Pacific Fleet Submarine Force, facing new powerful threats in the hotly contested Indo-Pacific. Are you concerned about what China's Navy is doing, particularly in the South China Sea and, and around Taiwan? I, I am concerned. You know, in today's world, we are facing two nuclear peer adversaries where we've never had that before. Uh, the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Union Russia was our peer adversary. We're now facing China, which has expanded and modernized their nuclear capabilities. The Mississippi is one of 49 fast attack submarines in the U.S. Naval Fleet. The fleet also has 14 larger submarines carrying nuclear-armed ballistic missiles. The U.S., U.K., and Australia's newly announced AUKUS partnership will send nuclear-powered submarines to Perth, potentially challenging China's ambitions for the region. Beijing now has the world's largest navy, but U.S. submarines have the world's most advanced technology, a key advantage in underwater warfare. Mississippi is ready to dive. Dive, dive, dive. The sub is capable of diving deep and fast, descending hundreds of feet in a matter of seconds. 300 feet. At angles of up to 25 degrees. Even standing up can be a challenge. 400 feet. Traveling underwater makes the submarine almost impossible to detect. The nuclear reactor is so quiet, the submarine makes less noise than a whale. In the dark depths of the ocean, there's no light to navigate. The team relies on highly sensitive sonar. Well, the ocean environment is very unforgiving. So there are a lot of challenges that prevent uh, a submarine from hearing another submarine or another surface ship. Um, and you've got to be able to understand those different challenges. The USS Mississippi, like all of America's nuclear submarines, can essentially uh, sustain itself under the water for weeks or even months at a time because of the nuclear reactor that powers them. They breathe recirculated air and purified water. The only thing that they need to actually get uh, resupplied with is food for the crew members. And that means that they get used to spending a very long time, not only without sunshine and blue skies, but also without regular communication or conversations with their families. The food on submarines is surprisingly good, but spending months underwater can be tough. No mobile phones allowed. Outside communication only possible on emails. Sailors have to look after each other. What most surprised you about life working on a submarine? Um, honestly, what surprised me the most was like the people. Um, how close you get with each other, these kind of uh, the shared hardships you share with each other, you end up with a really strong bond. The crew relies on that bond, 
carrying out complicated, dangerous tasks. Inside the torpedo room, technicians practice loading high-precision weapons capable of taking out other submarines and ships. End warning. Understand warning. At the back of the sub, Jack O'Brien works with a team of technical engineers. Do you ever get bored on a sub? No, no, absolutely not. Now, every day I come in thinking I know what I'm thinking, I know exactly what's going to happen, what I got to do. Rear Admiral Jablin says deterrence is the key objective. Even winning a war against an increasingly powerful China would likely result in devastating losses for both sides. I'm confident that should we be called upon to fight, and hopefully that will never happen, uh, that we would win. Submarines like the USS Mississippi are constantly preparing for war, ready at a moment's notice for whatever the future holds. Will Ripley, CNN, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Guys, you know, I kept just thinking, is that the hunt for Red October? Do you remember that movie? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's I mean, like, but the real thing. But it's real. And the idea, their capability is amazing. Yeah. They basically have yeah. unlimited range. That was such a cool look. I we was just jealous. in awe of Will standing you know, on the top of a submarine going across the water. Pretty cool. It's amazing. Pretty cool. Um, all right, something that is still cool, maybe not as cool as a nuclear-powered submarine, the Masters in Augusta, 87th Masters, actually, tournament that is teeing off in just a few hours. All eyes, as always, at a golf tournament will be on Tiger Woods. Questions about whether or not it's one of his final Masters. We'll take you live to Augusta next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That sure sounded like a hole-in-one roar just over our shoulders across the pond. This is Seamus Power on nine. Catch the slope, come back down. Have the proper speed. Oh Looks good. Seamus Power. Can you do that? Oh, that is, that's not real. Come on. Is that, what do we call it? The oh, AI? No, no, that's real. It is. Wow. That time of year again, that's Seamus Power. He had back-to-back -back holes in one ahead of the 87th Masters Tournament. That's what people want to get actually during the tournament. Yeah. <laughs> the repeat aces happened yesterday during the part three contest in Augusta, Georgia, where the first round of the Masters is going to kick off in just about an hour. CNN's World Sport host Don Rattel is live from the Augusta National Golf Club. Jealous, I mean, jealous, talk about the jealous. assignment of the year. How many pimento <laughs> cheese sandwiches have you had so far? Yeah. And pulled pork. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, only one pimento cheese sandwich, uh, guys, but the, uh, the week is yet young. There's, there's plenty of time. Uh, how cool was that par three yesterday? Of course, Seamus Power, absolutely brilliant. He's from Waterford in Ireland. When you shoot a hole in one here, you get some Waterford crystal, so uh, he's very familiar with that. <laughs> Nothing cuter than seeing all the kids uh, running around, uh, getting in the way of the uh, golfers, their dads who are trying to play, uh, you know, kids in bunkers playing in there like it's sand pits. Kids who can barely stand high the patrons. That was absolutely awesome. But the child's play is now over. As you say, the serious business of this tournament gets going really, really soon. Uh, in just over three hours' time, Tiger Woods plays, the five-time champion. We all know what he's been through. It was this time last year that he was trying to come back from that devastating car accident. He's hardly played since then. Is he going to be any good? We're about to find out. 
I can hit a lot of shots, uh, but the, the difficulty for me is going to be the walking going forward. You know, it, it, it is what it is. Whether I'm a threat to them or not, who knows? You know, I, people probably didn't think I was a, a threat in 19 either, uh, but it kind of turned out okay. It did. It did turn out okay uh, a few years ago. He actually says he's playing better than he was a year ago. His endurance is better, but he aches more. So we'll see. This is a very hilly place, and walking for him is the hardest thing. Uh, a lot of people are expecting that Scotty Scheffler is going to do it. He's the world number one, the defending champion. Uh, it would be historic if he could do it, though. Only three guys have ever successfully defended their title here, and uh, the last guy to do it, Tiger Woods, but Scotty Scheffler, a really, really hot pick here this week, guys. Um, yeah. Don, we did not hear one word you were saying. And you know why? Can we show why? <laughs> Let's put up the video. Let's go to the video. Look how cute these kids Because of these are. kids are so adorable. Little caddies. <laughs> I know. I should I should have just talked about that for two straight minutes. That would have been much better TV. Sorry. Sorry. Next time. No, I mean, they're just so cute. Caitlin says she wants one of those outfits. I want one, too. They're, look at that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I do love the Masters. Masters Sunday is, like, one of the greatest Sundays of the year. It's so I love to listen to it on the radio, actually. It's so peaceful. It was a big thing when I lived in Atlanta. People would go. Mm-hmm. We would jump in the car and go to the practice rounds yeah. and just eat and eat and walk around and you know, drink to a little bit. Don, great assignment. Thanks, Don. Have fun. <laughs> CNN This Morning continues right now. Mike Pence headed to the witness stand in the DOJ's January 6th investigation. This would be the first time that a former vice president testifies about his former boss in a criminal investigation. I do think that there will be uh, more that he can shed light on, particularly when it comes to his conversations with the former president. Having the vice president of the United States with a special counsel under oath, I think, adds enormous value. We take our support for the people of Taiwan seriously. The White House has tried to downplay the historic nature of the meeting and has urged China not to overreact. But Beijing threatening to fight back, calling the meeting a violation of its sovereignty. I am the Speaker of the House. There is no place that China is going to tell me where I can go or who I can speak to. Now concern is mounting in the Middle East after Israeli police and Palestinians clashed at one of Islam's holiest sites during two separate raids. Police said the worshippers were fortifying themselves within the sacred holy place. Egypt, Jordan and Saudi Arabia have denounced Israel for what happened. A deadly mystery in San Francisco. Cash app founder Bob Lee killed in an apparent stabbing attack. This is not a city where anybody should fear for their lives at 2.30 in the morning. There is the absolute perception that, that San Francisco is kind of the focus of a soft on crime trend. You can be anxious, sensitive, kind, and wear your heart on your sleeve. You can be a mother or not. You can be a nerd, a crier, a hugger. You can be all of these things. And not only can you be here, you can lead just like me. Good morning, everyone. So glad you could join us. You can see Caitlin and I are here in New York, obviously. Poppy is on assignment where? Oh, well, no surprise. It says Atlanta right above her head. <laughs> uh, maybe she's heading to the Masters, but I think with I her, it's probably a big interview that yep. she's going to do. Oh. Always business. 
We're looking forward to it. Yeah, we're going to sit down a little later this afternoon with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, talk all about the banking crisis. First time he's really sat down for an extensive conversation about what on earth is going on with the banks, our economy, the debt ceiling, a little bit of politics. They're opening a community branch here in Atlanta. So we'll have that for you on the program tomorrow morning, guys. All yeah, right. just a few pressing topics. Yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a few. Just a, just a wee bit. All of that and more, plus this, it looks like Mike Pence might finally testify in the special counsel's investigation of the former president, Donald Trump. Pence's spokesperson says that the former vice president will not appeal a judge's order to appear before the grand jury investigating the January 6th insurrection and Trump's efforts to overturn the election. So that means that Pence could potentially testify about conversations he had with Trump leading up to the insurrection, including that heated phone call on the morning of January 6th when Pence refused to block Joe Biden's victory. Plus, a CNN exclusive for you. Sources are telling CNN that the former national security officials have testified that Trump was repeatedly warned that he did not have the authority to seize voting machines. Let's discuss all of that and much more. Let's bring in our chief investigative correspondent and anchor, Ms. Pamela Brown. She hosted a CNN primetime special just last night on the Trump investigation. Good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning. Much. It's great Hi. to be here. First time on the set. Yeah, yeah. Love it's it. good yeah. to have you. How significant do you think Pence's testimony will be for the special counsel, Jackson? I think very significant. I know, Caitlin, you probably feel the same way. Like this is this was Trump's number two. Um, as you mentioned, there was a heated phone call on the day of January 6th. Before that happened, there were many conversations our reporting indicates leading up to January 6th, where Trump was pressuring Pence to not to, to intervene and to go outside of the bounds of his constitutional role. And, um, you know, and essentially in all in an effort to overturn the election results. And so now, as it stands, and we don't know whether Trump's team is going to appeal on executive privilege grounds, but as it stands now, he will he will have to testify most likely before a grand jury and to prosecutors without any protections uh, except for the limited speech or debate clause protections, which is a little fuzzy in terms of like what exactly that's going to cover. But it yeah. seems as though a lot of those one on one conversations will be part of it. Just to clarify, he's not going to appeal Pence, but Trump's team could appeal. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so Trump's. Yeah, yeah, Trump's team. Yeah. So Pence, um, he said he's not going to appeal. Right. But Trump's team can still appeal on the executive privilege grounds. But even if they do appeal, I mean, they have been losing almost every executive yeah. privilege fight that they've been waging. Mm -hmm. It's not. That's what I'm struck by is that it's it, Pence obviously could be the most consequential one because he had the one on one conversations with Trump. Trump, but it's Mark Meadows. It's all of these other top Trump officials that they tried to get them from from testifying, but they've lost those battles, as we reported earlier this it's week. Striking. It didn't get a lot of attention because Trump wasn't quite right. that day, but it, it could be very significant for Jack Smith's investigation. Uh, it is striking. And it would be actually a little bit surprising if they appeal on that, because then potentially they're going to have another loss. Right. And there I mean, it's it's clear where that is going, given what you just said with Mark Meadows and others that they have lost with on the executive privilege grounds. But this is a huge development that Mike Pence is going to be talking to, to Jack Smith and the prosecutors, potentially a grand jury about his conversations with Trump. And, it, and what, what it does is it helps um, prosecutors, investigators understand Trump's state of mind, too. And, and efforts to overturn the election. You know, did he know that he lost, but he was still you know, engaged in this pressure campaign to have people like Mike Pence engage in, in these efforts? So it's significant. Another Trump investigation. Let's talk about Manhattan now, because on that mm -hmm. case, you heard the Trump ally, or you heard from Trump ally um, Mike Davis last night, who was critical to DA, DA Alvin Bragg and the judge. What do you think? 
Yeah, he was. Um, and he was basically carrying on the line that we've heard from Trump himself and others in, in Trump's world um, that basically, you know, look, that this judge is biased, even though Joe Tacopina, Trump's lawyer, has said he didn't believe he was biased. This is clearly a political attack um, against this judge, Mershon. Here's exactly what Mike Davis said about it to me last night. If the judge has the appearance of bias, which I, I, it looks like he does, he donated to Joe Biden's campaign, he should get off this case. And this judge has a history with President Trump in prior cases. So, so maybe that's what President Trump is referring to. And I think you're going to continue to, to hear this um, new talking point about the judge's donations. Uh, we looked into it. There are FEC filings that show that the judge donated through Act Blue, which is a progressive platform for uh, contributions to Democratic candidates. Um, he did donate, and it looks as though it was a very small amount. It's like 15. 30 bucks. Yeah, I was like, I think, yeah, I think it was 35 altogether, but 15 um, mm. to Biden. But still, very small, small number, right, under, under $50. But that's not going to stop them from attacking this judge. And, you know, I really pressed him on the fact that this Trump did this only hours after being told by that judge, listen, don't engage in rhetoric that could cause harm or potentially incite violence. We know that Trump has very devout um, followers, right? But then hours later, he not only goes after the judge, he goes after the judge's family in this case. Um, and But I think you're going to continue to hear this, this talking point about the judge and they're going to argue he's biased and try to take him off the case ultimately, like he said. You and wonder if they're so confident in why to go after the judge. But, yeah. yeah, they are. I mean, this uh, Trump, obviously, as you know, has a history of going after judges. And we should note that what he was saying there about the, the history with Trump is because he was over the trial for Alan Weisselberg, who is obviously serving out his yeah. sentence right now, that was the chief <clears throat> financial officer of the Trump Organization. But you also spoke with the jury foreman of the yeah. failed trial of, of John Edwards. And of course, that is something that the Trump campaign and Trump's team has been drawing a comparison between the two of those. This is what the foreman told Pam. I think the, the key difference that I see in this one is that um, it feels a little bit more political than it did back in the John Edwards case. And I know there were politics involved, but at the time it felt you didn't feel the same circus kind of uh, feeling as you do today. So they've been drawing that comparison. You know, mm -hmm. how relevant do you see that as a, a tie or, you know, indication of what could happen here? I mean, look, there are a lot of similarities. The bottom line of the Edwards case, bottom line in, in this Manhattan Trump case is that there was a hush money scheme to benefit a political campaign, right? Now, there are differences. John Edwards was was federal. Trump, obviously, this is at the in, in the um, local level. But it is significant, and it was really um, illuminating to talk to this juror because he was looking at many of the same circumstances and facts when he was the foreman in the John Edwards case, and he said that um, the credibility of the star witness is very important. And as we know, John Edwards was acquitted, and, he's, and I, I asked him, I said, well, then what do you think about Michael Cohen? Because he is the star witness in this case. And he said, I, I think he didn't want to go there specifically and, and do any sort of attack on Cohen. But he said, I, I put Cohen in the same similar camp as a star witness in John Edwards case, which he didn't believe was very strong. And ultimately, as we know how they voted. So 
it was illuminating. And of course, there's a lot in this case we don't know, right? A lot of the corroborating evidence and, and information that's just not out there yet. But it was really illuminating given the similarities in these cases. Right, yeah. So you've got January 6th, you've got the, uh, the DA here, you've got um, E. Jean Carroll, you've got, you know, the special counsel. There's a Add lot going on. Georgia, where yeah. Poppy is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, so that's what I was going to say. we got Georgia right now. Thank you. It's good to see yeah, you. Yeah, good to Always see you. Yeah. Have you at the table. Yeah. I know, it was great. you got Georgia where Poppy is, but they're on a different story today, Poppy. Yeah, and I miss, of course, the one day I'm here, I don't get to hug my buddy Pam, but she was great last night in the special. All right, hon. Uh, but turning to what is happening, really tense in Israel. Overnight, Israeli police storming Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque for a second time. This comes less than 24 hours after police raided the compound, firing stun grenades and rubber bullets. They arrested more than 300 Palestinians. These violent clashes keep taking place, and they're happening as worshipers were inside offering prayers for the holy month of Ramadan, and they're sparking retaliatory rocket fire from Gaza. Hadass Gold joins us live this hour in Jerusalem with more. The question is, where does this go? Does this go to 2021 levels? Well, that is the question that everybody has, because in 2021, of course, similar clashes at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, which you can actually see behind me, helped spark that 11-day war between the Israeli military and Hamas. And we are seeing a sort of similar cycle now. Twice in less than 24 hours, the Israeli police have raided Al-Aqsa, and twice in less than 24 hours, rockets have been fired from Gaza and into Israel. Now, overnight, the Israeli police raid into the Al-Aqsa Mosque seemed to be a little bit less, you could say, dramatic than the night before, not nearly as many people were injured or arrested, but it also happened during a much busier time period. There seemed to be more kind of your regular worshippers who were inside the mosque. But once again, Israeli police saying that they had to go in because they believe that there were dozens of what they call juveniles who barricaded themselves inside with fireworks and stones they were preparing to throw at Israeli police. But again, it's hard to underestimate how or to hard to overestimate how provocative and offensive it is seen around the Muslim world, especially for Israeli police to even step forward foot inside of the mosque, let alone engage with things like stun grenades and rubber bullets. Of course, then again, overnight, once again, we saw the response from militants in Gaza saying that they were responding specifically to what was happening uh, at Al-Aqsa with at least seven rockets fired. So far, though, I have to say it doesn't seem as though right now there's an interest by either the side of Hamas or the Israeli military to escalate this further. But Hamas has called on Palestinians today to march here, to march to Al-Aqsa to show their support. Poppy. Hadass, thank you very much for that reporting from Jerusalem. Doc. At least 417 anti-LGBTQ bills have been introduced in state legislatures across the United States since the start of the year. It's a record that's according to data from the American Civil Liberties Union. That's more than twice the number of such bills introduced all last year. Now, along with the renewed push to ban access to gender-affirming health care for transgender youth, there has been a heavy focus on curriculum in public schools, including discussions around gender identity and sexuality. This new wave of anti-LGBTQ legislation, many directly targeting the nearly two million transgender people living in the U.S., comes at a time when one in four transgender adults said that they have been physically attacked. That's according to a Kaiser Family Foundation. Also this morning, Idaho's Republican governor has now signed a new abortion bill into law. This new law creates a new crime, abortion trafficking. It bans adults from helping minors get an abortion or abortion medication in another state without a parent's consent. The punishment is a minimum of two years, but up to five years in prison. 
Abortion right groups are vowing to fight the new law, and the governor says uh, that he signed it the same day that health care providers sued the state's attorney general over new abortion guidance. Of course, months ago, last fall, the Biden administration sued Idaho over its new tighter abortion restrictions. That's a case that has been closely watched, of course, across the country. Mm-hmm. And just to think about that, but also what we're seeing from voters as we saw what happened in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Yep. Like, it's amazing to see how that Dobbs decision has just changed and shaped the national landscape on abortion. And so I, sh- I think it's changing and shaping, um, you know, I don't think it's, obviously it's not over yet. It's having a ripple effect that's still continuing yeah, throughout the country. Views. It's interesting because we were talking uh, a little earlier offline, guys, about this Wall Street Journal. It's notable it's in the Wall Street Journal editorial board out with this piece this morning saying, look at the races this week in Chicago and Wisconsin. We talked about them a lot on the show Yesterday, guys, the the Wall Street Journal is calling this a five alarm fire for Republicans, saying Republicans better get their abortion position straight and more in line with where voters are or they will face another disappointment in 2024. Pointing to, for example, what Michigan was able to do in the midterms now makes their abortion law, for example, um, even more uh, lenient, if you will, than it was under Roe. So it just it's it's interesting, right, to see the journal saying Republicans this is a warning sign for you across the country, Republican lawmakers. Yeah, I mean, that's what Nancy Mace, the Republican congresswoman from South Carolina, has been saying. She thinks that Republicans need to change not their entire stance on abortion, but the way that they talk about abortion and health access for women because they think it's damaging to to their political future. But the true test will be, um, you know, a big election where the people have to go and vote for representatives or what have you. Again, we saw what happened in Wisconsin, and so maybe that is um, a harbinger of things to come. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right, Poppy, we'll check back in with you. Also okay. this morning in Baltimore, the Archdiocese is now apologizing after a Maryland Attorney General's investigation and report alleged there is widespread and repeated sexual abuse of more than 600 children. Mm-hmm. The report named 156 Catholic clergy members and others of the horrific abuse and cover-ups, not just the abuse, it's also the cover-ups that happened for more than six decades. Uh, This is a full accounting. Uh, There are details of repeated, tortuous, terrorizing, uh, depraved abuse. CNN's Gene Casares is tracking all of this coming out of the new report. I mean, this report, I was looking at this yesterday, it is staggering. It is staggering. We've seen it in other jurisdictions. Boston, I covered Pennsylvania, and now Maryland. This report, it was just released by Maryland's attorney general, and it alleges sexual abuse of at least 600 children over six decades, beginning in the 1940s. That abuse would have been committed by 156, at least, clergy members, from priests to deacons to teachers, others employees of the archdiocese. The report alleged how victims, they were plied with alcohol and drugs, and then they were coerced and forced to perform sexual acts. I want you to see exactly from the report. It says, from the 1940s through 2002, over 100 priests and other archdiocese personnel engaged in horrific and repeated abuse of the most vulnerable children in their communities, while archdiocese leadership looked the other way. Time and again, members of the church's hierarchy resolutely refused to acknowledge allegations of child sexual abuse for as long as possible. Now, 13.2 million has been given to 303 victims at this point since the 1980s. The money is going for counseling and for settlements. 
Many alleged victims were too late here because according to the civil statute of limitations in Maryland, victims have no recourse if they are over 38 years old. The report cites why they didn't come out sooner. Some wanted their parents to pass on before they would come forward. They didn't want their parents to know what they had endured. And by the time they did that, it was too late under the law. Others just didn't admit it, wouldn't acknowledge it, and others had repressed memories. That's heartbreaking. I mean, because you, you talk about the settlements, that it's going to counseling and whatnot, but you, you can't, money doesn't fix that. Yeah. yeah, it was an amazing investigation in that they would go to old journals and find handwritten ledgers of, of priests and, and other personnel with the church. And it's amazing what they have put together, but much more to do. And an issue now in Maryland's statute of limitations. Yeah. Stunning. I, I really just don't know what to say when reading Could at, at least 600 children. It's just And it is the victims. You know, it's the victims. What yeah. that does to someone's life forever. You can't fix that with you money can't. or anything. Yeah. Right. No. Do, do you think it could bring about a change in the statute of limitations? What does that look like? Well, it happened in New York, right? Yeah. Because New York uh, developed a law passed by the legislature so that for one year that there would be no statute of limitations and people could come forward with their cases. And I covered the Kevin Spacey case mm-hmm. in uh, downtown New York City, and, and that was based on this law right there. But it's, it's challenging because memories fade, people pass on, the, the older the case is, and it's very difficult to prove. Mm. Yeah. All right, Gene. Yeah, Thank we'll you. continue to follow that for sure. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate it. Well, China making a new threat this morning after the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwan's president. A congressman who was at that meeting will join us live to weigh in. There he is. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Well, my first message to China, there's no need for retaliation. But the one thing I would say to China, too, at no time, I am the Speaker of the House. There's no place that China is going to tell me where I can go or who I can speak to, whether you be foe or whether you be friend. So it is a very busy morning as headlines about China's role in world relations are flowing in this morning. President Xi Jinping meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron, who is asking, also asking Xi to help bring Russia back to the negotiating table in the Ukraine conflict. But China is warning the United States this morning and vowing to retaliate after the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwan's president on American soil. Hours after that meeting, a bipartisan U.S. House delegation landed in Taiwan. Taiwan's defense ministry says it detected Chinese warships around the island after McCarthy's summit. And they're keeping a close eye on this Chinese aircraft carrier, uh, an aircraft carrier strike, a strike group as it passes nearby. So these are photos. It's from just yesterday. Back in August, though, China launched massive military drills and fired missiles near Taiwan after then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island. CNN's MJ Lee live for us at the White House this morning. MJ, good morning to you. How is the White House responding to this meeting? Well, Don, you know, the White House's response, if you can sum it up in one line, is probably there is nothing to see here. Uh, U.S. officials have been saying over and over again that there's nothing unusual about the Taiwanese president visiting the U.S. or even meeting with U.S. lawmakers here. And we've seen U.S. officials warning their counterparts in Beijing, uh, do not escalate, do not take any aggressive action. But of course, the administration is keeping an eye out for exactly that, and particularly when it comes 
comes to potential movements of Chinese military assets. Uh, take a listen to what White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said yesterday about what Washington's message to Beijing has been in recent days. Our channels of communications are open and we have had a consistent message that has uh, urged restraint and in recent days we have conveyed directly to the Chinese at high levels that escalation is uncalled for uh, and, uh, and so we'll continue to keep those channels of conversations open. You know, and something else we have been hearing from this White House is that this meeting uh, was not official, uh, that Taiwanese President uh, Tsai did not meet with any administration officials. But one thing that I couldn't get an answer to yesterday from a White House spokesperson was whether administration officials were involved in sort of prepping Kevin McCarthy ahead of this meeting. So, uh, guys, obviously goes without saying that this further sort of complicates what has been growing tensions between uh, Washington and Beijing that we have seen in recent weeks. Mm. MJ, on a different note, speaking of growing, the, your family is growing. <laughs> That's right. My family is about to grow. Yeah. Yeah. We're so excited for you. We excited. love having you on the program, and we're just wishing you all the best. We're saying that because it's your last Thank day you. for a while. Yeah, and we're so happy to, for you, and we wish you all the best. We're going to miss seeing you on the White House lawn every morning for a while, but you'll be back. Just for a little bit. Thank you so much. I'll uh, be back later this summer. All right. And congratulations <laughs> to MJ and family. Thanks. Absolutely. We are, we are so happy for MJ. Right. Joining us now on that reporting that she just gave us from the White House, one of the lawmakers who met with President Tsai yesterday, Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. He serves on the House Select Committee on China. Congressman, it's great to have you here. Can we actually uh, start with MJ's last piece of reporting there that it's just unclear if there was any involvement in the White House in prepping McCarthy and you guys for this meeting? C can you answer that? Because the stance they've taken has been really neutral and sort of uninvolved. Is that correct? Well, I, I did not receive any White House or administration uh, briefings. I'm not sure if uh, the Speaker of the House did or not. Um, but look, this is a very bipartisan event, and uh, it's, a, it's a routine event. Uh, President Tsai met with uh, Leader Hakeem Jeffries of the Democratic Party uh, in New York just a couple days ago, and this was a very bipartisan discussion that we had yesterday in California. It certainly was. I mean, we all remember Nancy former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to meet with, them, with President Tsai in Taiwan. And the fact that yesterday she praised Kevin McCarthy for this, saying, quote, it is to be commended for its leadership, I think shows how united you guys are vis-a-vis -vis China on this front, on TikTok, on a lot of fronts. But do you think that actually turns into legislative action? Yes, I think it will. Uh, we had that discussion yesterday. We talked with President Tsai about things that we can do to strengthen our economic cooperation. We talked about uh, potential trade uh, opportunities between our countries and also with our allies in Southeast Asia. Remember, it's not just Taiwan that's concerned about China, South Korea, uh, Japan, the Philippines, all are getting intimidated, threatened by the Chinese Communist Party right now. And, and we're, we're allies together and we stand for peace in the Pacific, just as we stand for peace uh, in Ukraine, in Europe and around the world. So we have been talking about legislative steps that we can, t uh, we can take and doing so in a bipartisan way. This is a very uh, united American front here. Did President Tsai ask for military aid? And if so, what exactly? President Tsai didn't ask for any additional military aid than we're already providing, but she did ask that we speed up the delivery of the weapon systems that we've promised. And we talked a lot about how deterrence here, deterrence against an invasion 
by China uh, of Taiwan is, is more comprehensive than just a military uh, operation. Obviously, Taiwan wants to strengthen its defenses, uh, but they also recognize there's a piece for economic deterrence. Uh, they recognize that having stronger relationships through trade, not just with the United States, uh, but with all our allies in the Pacific, that helps deterrence as well. You know, w we have to admit that as well as the war in Ukraine is going, deterrence in Europe failed. We weren't able to prevent the war with Ukraine. Vladimir Putin just went ahead and invaded. I think he's been surprised by how united America has been with its allies. We want to make it clear to Xi Jinping in China uh, that he's going to face a united front. There's not just going to be uh, Taiwan and the United States. There are a lot of nations very concerned about his provocative actions in the Pacific. On that point of deterrence, which is far beyond military deterrence, I was struck by what you told the New York Times, which essentially was the president of Taiwan thinks that economic and trade partnerships are a bigger deterrent even than military deterrence. And she's been speaking around the United States over the past few days and said in this closed door meeting that was reported in The Washington Post that I think the Chinese have this belief the best way to win the war is without war. How can the U.S. do more to help Taiwan non-militarily? Well, frankly, having this meeting uh, yesterday is an example of the kind of ongoing diplomacy that's, that's quite routine between the United States uh, and all of our allies and quite routine uh, with Taiwan. I think this is the sixth meeting uh, that President Tsai has had or uh, visiting the United States uh, since she's been in office. But strengthening that relationship and showing that we have strong economic ties with Taiwan and that they're investing in the United States, we're investing in Taiwan, and our other allies in the Pacific are united uh, in that economic partnership, ultimately that shows Xi Jinping uh, that he's not just gonna have to face a Taiwanese military challenge if he tries to invade and take over the island, he's gonna face a united economic front. Remember, it's the economic sanctions that have been so punishing to Putin since his illegal invasion of Ukraine. We wanna make it clear to Xi Jinping before he starts, before he tries to cross the Taiwan Strait, uh, that this is the kind of a united front he's going to face. Well, that, and that's obviously part of why members of your committee met with the biggest sort of business leaders out in California yesterday, like Disney CEO Bob Iger, Apple's Tim Cook, etc. Um, Congressman Moulton, we appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Good to see you. Back to you guys. Just such a rare moment of bipartisanship yeah. on Taiwan. Yes. Yeah, very rare. Totally. You don't see that on Capitol Hill these days. All right, Puppy, great interview there. Really notable to see what he is saying. We'll wait to hear from other members of Congress since we know there's that bipartisan delegation on the ground there now. In the meantime, we are tracking a stabbing that has startled the tech hub of the U.S. Questions about safety in San Francisco after the stabbing death of the tech executive and founder of Cash App, Bob Lee. He was just 43 years old. All right, a disturbing story out of San Francisco this morning where police are searching for answers after the stabbing death of the Cash App founder, Bob Lee. They say that the investigation into the death of the 43-year-old tech executive is still in the early stages. No arrests have been made. The city has been grappling with an uptick in crime as it is attempting to bounce back from the COVID-19 pandemic. Elon Musk tweeting, quote, violent crime in San Francisco is horrific, and even if the attackers are caught, they're often released immediately. Joining us now per, for perspective on all of this, CNN anchor and senior national correspondent Sarah Seidner. 
And for our upcoming news, Sunday show, the whole story with Anderson Cooper, she went to San Francisco to actually uncover what's going on in the city. You lived there also. So you know, you have a good perspective on this. Is this an anomaly? Is this something that people should be concerned about? <sighs> Two things could be true at once. When I lived in San Francisco, things are very different from back then, between 2004 and 2008, to where we are now. It, there's a marked difference. That is not a surprise. The one thing everyone says to you when you go into that city is, watch where you park your car, because almost inevitably, your car is going to get broken into. If there is anything visible, it is going to get broken into at some point in time. Um, but when you hear comments like that from Elon Musk, he is referring to the former district attorney who was recalled, Chesa Bodine, because the city decided they didn't want somebody who was going to be in a position of sort of being softer, if you will, on crime, for lack of a better word, um, and, and being more lenient. And so they decided that this was such a big issue in the city that, by the way, is very small in space, seven by seven square miles. So you see things in that city, you, you're forced to because everything is compressed, right? But when you hear Elon Musk saying something like, you know, violent crime is out of control, here are the numbers. And that's not what the numbers show. Uh, in 2020, that's the most recent FBI data. San Francisco police reported 544 violent crimes per 100,000 people in the city. Houston is double that, more than double that per 100,000. So there are about 1,200 violent crimes in the city. So people need to understand that some of this is coming from San Francisco wasn't like this a few years ago, and it has gotten worse. The mayor there, Mayor Breed, is fed up. I mean, she said, and I'm quoting her, we've got to do something about this BS, but she said the whole word. Let me let you listen to her. And you're seeing some of the video that went viral of people going into stores, smashing and grabbing. Mm -hmm. um, everyone has seen this. And so people think, oh my gosh, San Francisco is like this all the time. It is in some ways because of the car break-ins and the petty crime. But when it comes to violent crime, it's actually lower than a lot of cities of its size. Let's, let's listen to what uh, London Breed told me as I talked to her. But we need to enforce the law. Because public safety isn't only about taking care of our residents, it's also about taking care of our economy. That was when she was speaking to a group, I apologize. But you heard her say, we need to enforce the law. When she first came into office, everyone thought of her as someone that wanted to remove money from certain parts of policing and put it somewhere else so the defund of the police the moniker, thing, yeah. right? Um, I asked her if she'd changed, and she said, I've gone back to my roots. When I was a young girl living in the city, she lived in uh, the, the area that was public housing. She said she was afraid sometimes mm -hmm. coming and going home. Yeah. And she doesn't want anyone to live like that. And so she's like, I'm going back to my roots and we've got to fix this. And she's called for help from the federal government. You know, it's similar to big cities all over the country. Even as you were reading the stats here in New York City, if you look at New York City per capita, right, for the number of people, it's not as high as some smaller states, some smaller cities across the country. So it's a whole idea. What is real perception or the real, the reality of it? Yeah. But it does happen to so many people. It the, does. The, the perception can become aggravate. the reality. Absolutely. Like, does it affect, I mean, she's got to be worried about it affecting tourism and, and things she like is. that because you hear these stories. I mean, Kyung, our Kyung Law, yep. this happened to her. They had security while they yep. were on a shoot in San Francisco. 
still got robbed. The thieves yeah. are aggressive and they don't care. They will fight you and try to take your stuff. So you have to be very careful. Plus the Asian yeah. population has been very significant it's in pushing this forward because yeah. there have been so many attacks on particularly the elderly Asian population. And so. Bob Lee, the Cash App founder, Bob Lee, of course, family without their loved one this morning. Yeah. We're yeah. thinking about him. Horrible. Thank you, Sarah. We'll be watching in just a couple of hours on News Central. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Sarah, I cannot wait to see that and see you on your new show. Uh, also ahead for us here, Hugh Jackman, right? The actor, the star, revealing a scare with skin cancer and issuing this warning. Put some sunscreen on. You'll still have an incredible time out there. All right? Please be safe. And later, a dramatic mix-up at a Boston hotel. An FBI training exercise gone wrong that had a hotel guest mistakenly detained. We'll explain. Well, a health scare for actor Hugh Jackman, and he's sharing a really important message with his fans. Watch. I've just had two biopsies done, and she just saw little things could be or could not be basal cell, in her opinion. She doesn't know. I'll find out in two or three days, and as soon as I know, I'll let you know. If I can just take this opportunity to remind you, summer is coming. For those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere, please wear sunscreen. It is just not worth it. This is all stuff that happened 25 years ago. It's coming out now. Put some sunscreen on. Listen to your parents. Put sunscreen on. Jackman is referring to basal cell carcinoma, which is a common form of skin cancer. He told fans he'll give updates when they're in, so that should be in just a few days. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, is with us now. I say listen to our parents because that was the refrain as I was stupidly going to, like, tan as a teenager wear your sunscreen. And he is reminding us all how important that is. Yeah, even, even if you grew up in Minnesota, right, Poppy? I mean, you, you got to wear your sunscreen sun, wherever you are. For know, three months of the year, sun. the sun does shine. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, and you needed to wear your sunscreen, not only then, but even on days when, when it's potentially cloudy out there. And I think the point that, uh, that Hugh Jackman make, made there as well is that 25 years ago is when he probably suffered some of this, this uh, sun damage and it's, it's sort of affecting him now. So you got to do this from a very young age. Um, it's, it's a big deal. I mean, you know, we don't pay enough attention to skin cancers and to what we can do to prevent it. If you look at the numbers overall, and this is just in the United States, talking about, you know, the numbers of these basal cell or squamous cell type cancers, um, about five and a half million are diagnosed every year. Eight out of 10, 80% are the ones that, that Hugh Jackman was talking about, 80, the uh, basal cell carcinomas. Death is uncommon, very uncommon, but they can spread. Uh, they can lead to the, the necessity for procedures, as you just saw there. Let me just give you a quick primer here, Poppy. I, I think this, this graphic of what your skin looks like is really important. The epidermis, that's the outer layer of your skin. It's, it's basically a thickness of like a credit card. Um, and you're seeing that in, in this image here, where these cells are specifically, the squamous cells and the basal cells, they lie there in that epidermis. That's what can be affected by sun. They can be mutated and they can turn into cancer even years later. You also have another type of cell known as melanocytes. If they become mutated, that can turn into melanoma. Much less common, but potentially far more serious. So that is why you wear sunscreen, Poppy. 
I just had a, a family member have a little bit of a like a skin cancer scare as well. They're fine, but you know, it sort of brought it to our minds. How often should people be going yeah. in for screenings? And and what like what should prompt that? Yeah, so you know, right now if you've not had a problem, uh, then they really suggest that you sort of monitor your own your own skin. If you've had a history of skin cancer, you should go in and get regular screenings. But you can you can monitor things pretty closely yourself. In medicine, we like to keep things pretty simple. So there's these uh, these these acronyms to just sort of remember. In this case, A B C D E. If you have an unusual lesion on your skin. Uh, here's the things you need to pay attention to. A is, is that lesion or mole asymmetric? Is it, is it uh, different on one side versus the other? Are the borders, that's B, irregular in some way? Is the color changing? That's the C, and then diameter is D, is it growing in size? And, and E, evolving, meaning is it changing in some way? Just keep an eye on these things. Take a picture if you need to. Have someone else take a look at it if it's a hard place to see on your back, for example. But that's, that's basically it. If it's staying the same, you don't need to worry about it as much. Look for changes. Look on your back. Have your family look on your back. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. And as we all know, I spend, we all spend a lot of time. I spend so much time in the sun in the summer. Sunscreen, 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 which I don't always do. But lately, I mean, I have a hat that, that is this big. Um, <laughs> I because, need to see that. No, I mean, we, we need it. Yeah, we need it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Sanjay. Thank you, Poppy. Also this morning, President Biden is weighing in on the artificial intelligence debate, the areas where he also agrees it could be dangerous. And we have this just into CNN. Protesters storming the BlackRock Investment Building in Paris in the 11th day of nationwide protests. We're going to go there live for you. We'll take you there. More CNN this morning to come after the break. AI, AI, everything is about AI now. President Biden weighing in on the potential threat from artificial intelligence. Do you think AI is dangerous? It remains to be seen. It could be. So he made that remark on Tuesday during a meeting with his Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, which includes executives from Google and Microsoft. The president said AI can help deal with some very difficult challenges like disease and climate change, but... We also have to address the potential risks to our society, to our economy, and to our national security. This comes after Elon Musk and other top tech minds signed an open letter calling for a six-month pause on AI experiments. So joining us now is the futurist tech entrepreneur, Sinead Bovell. Um, she is the founder of a weekly advice for young entrepreneurs on Way, right? W way. Correct. W way. Yes. Thank you. Good to see you this morning. So and thank you for joining us as a tech entrepreneur. What does this mean that President Biden is bringing this up now? What's going on here? I think this is a, an important statement for a few reasons. Clearly, there's a lot of excitement, but also a fair bit of fear right now about the state of artificial intelligence, the pace things are evolving at. Uh, so this statement calls attention to the important conversations we need to have at a national level and the conversations we can expect to have at a national level. But I think it's important to point out that President Biden mentions both benefits and risks of the technology. To me, that's a nod to tech companies, that the administration isn't here to just regulate innovation away. They know AI comes with a lot of benefit and they expect to capitalize on that. At the same time, this can't be the Wild West. These systems come with potential danger, potential harm, and those need to be addressed as well. 
Yeah, I mean, color me skeptical, though, that Washington is going to be able to do anything about this. They can barely get their hands around TikTok and the dramas there or the name image likeness stuff when it comes to college sports. I mean, they're not exactly always ahead of the curve on this stuff. But it is interesting to me that he's he's talking about the companies making sure that they're safe. But we're hearing from the companies in this amazing letter that came out last week basically saying they don't even know what the risks are. People like Elon Musk signing on to it. Right. So clearly there is a bit of a conflict of interest when the only people that can really assess the safety of these systems and where they are in their evolution are the companies themselves. Uh, so what could a solution look like? We need to establish more independent bodies and independent researchers that can assess these systems, uh, that can put in safeguards, and that do some form of testing before these systems get deployed into the market. Uh, I think that the call from researchers and, and some companies that, that AI presents a lot of danger, uh, some of that was a little bit more uh, Hollywood-esque, uh, but there are real dangers and, and limitations that we need to be mitigating against. Sinead, I want to put up this um, next video that we're going to show. AI can, it can create videos just by using text prompts. This is from an app called Runway. I mean, this video was created simply by typing in the prompt aerial drone footage of a mountain range. And then this one was created by typing late afternoon sun peeking through the window of New York City loft. This is fascinating. This is quite remarkable. There's another one, a mountain video generated from mountain video as well that they just put in a prompt. Yeah, this is, this is quite remarkable. So these are AI uh, video generators. So just using a short description, a few words, uh, AI will generate a video in an instant. Uh, right now, the videos are quite short with Runway. They're about four, four seconds, and the quality is pretty good. But we can expect the pipeline of this technology to evolve, where we can generate long-form, realistic videos from a simple description. Uh, this is going to have a lot of implications for the workforce, for, for filmmakers, uh, for creators. Uh, it's, it's an exciting time. It is, so we were talking about, everyone's pretty aware of the risks. I mean, you watch a Hollywood movie and you're like, oh my God, this is what AI is going to look like. But I was telling you in the commercial, I was listening to a podcast, Hard Fork, the other day about the benefits of AI and how it can actually be used in everyday life. Like there's a lot of potential here, not just all, you know, scare and fear mongering about what AI can do. Absolutely. So, so these generative AI systems are going to transform the workforce in terms of productivity. Uh, we're putting creative tools in the hands of essentially everyone. Uh, so we can imagine you know, the filmmaking process, the editing process to get a lot faster. Uh, we're going to see new entrants into the creative field uh, utilizing these tools, and they're incredibly easy to use. So a big misconception with AI is that you need all of this technical skill. Yeah. Uh, this is just requires a few short words. And Emailing, have, grocery mm -hmm. lists, things like that 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 it's going yeah. to change. Before mm -hmm. we let you go, this, all this computer-generated stuff, AI stuff, should there be a watermark so we can know what's real and what's not? I think if we do want to protect our information ecosystems, that is something we should certainly consider, not in a way that it ruins the quality oh, of these right. outputs, but at this point in time, misinformation, disinformation just got a lot easier, faster, and more scaled with these systems. Yeah. Thank you, Sinead Bovell. Hey. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having be me. Well. CNN This Morning continues right now. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 8 a.m. hour of CNN this morning. Don and I are here in New York. Poppy is on assignment in Atlanta, as you can see her there. This is just into CNN. We have new video of protesters who are storming the BlackRock Investment Building in Paris. We'll tell you why. We'll take you there. 
Political chaos in North Carolina. That's after a state lawmaker switches parties and gives Republicans a veto-proof majority, what it could mean for abortion rights and future elections. Also, the special counsel investigating Donald Trump could finally get testimony from former Vice President Mike Pence. That could be incredibly significant. You know, it's a month of pushback, and now Pence, it appears, is going to finally testify in the special counsel's investigation into Trump and his actions on January 6th. A spokesman for the former vice president says he will not appeal a judge's ruling, an order, that he must appear before the grand jury that's investigating the insurrection and Trump's efforts to overturn the election. That means Pence could testify about the one-on-one -on -one conversations he had with Trump leading up to that day, including what we know is a heated phone call that happened the morning of the riot when Pence refused Trump's efforts to get him to try to block the certification of President Biden's win. Plus, a CNN exclusive this morning, as CNN, as sources are telling CNN that former national security officials have testified that Trump was repeatedly warned he didn't have the authority to seize voting machines, as some were encouraging him to do so. CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is tracking all of this. Paula, Pence going to testify could be potentially game-changing in this investigation. It's potentially historic, Caitlin, for him to go and testify under oath about this pressure campaign that he faced from the former president and his allies as they tried to get him, unsuccessfully, to block Biden's victory. He can talk about conversations he had with the former president. And as you noted, one of the conversations that's going to be of particular interest was that really heated phone call that he had with the former president around the time of the insurrection. Other witnesses we know have discussed that, and the grand jury would like to probably hear that particular evidence from his perspective. Now, this would be the first time that he would be cooperating in a criminal investigation against his former boss, though it's interesting. He has been given at least one carve-out, so questions that he won't have to answer. He won't have to discuss anything related to his official role as president of the Senate on January 6th. That was something that his lawyers had fought for on constitutional grounds. He considers getting that carve-out to be a constitutional uh, victory. It's one of the first times the courts have weighed in on this. At this point, we don't know when he will testify. But based on my reporting, I don't expect the former president to appeal this on executive privilege grounds, because as you know, so far, they've been unsuccessful uh, on that pursuit. Yeah, they've basically lost all of them. Yeah. And Paula, we're also learning from reporting from Zach Cohen this morning that national security officials testified Trump had been repeatedly warned that he could not seize voting machines that came after he lost the election. What do we know about what these officials, top officials from his White House, his administration, told uh, told investigators. Yeah, this is a great window into the kind of evidence the grand jury is hearing. This exclusive reporting, like you said, from our colleague Zach Cohen, we're talking about the really top officials in this administration. The Department of Homeland Security Chief, Chad Wolf, uh, one of his top deputies, Ken Cuccinelli, as well as the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, have all been asked about this and testified that the former president and his allies, they were told repeatedly the government didn't have the authority to seize voting machines. Now, former Attorney General Bill Barr has also spoken publicly uh, and in his testimony to the January 6th committee about Trump's interest in this, he's also said publicly, look, we made it clear that was not an option. But this is significant because it shows us exactly what special counsel Jack Smith is interested in and really the breadth and depth of information that the grand jury is hearing as they weigh possible charges. Yeah, we'll see what outcome, what the outcome is, what difference it makes. Paula Reed, thanks for those updates.
With more on all of these legal threads, we're joined by the former U.S. attorney from Georgia's Middle District, Michael Moore. Nice to have you in person. Good to be, Good to be in your beautiful state. Uh, so Paula's reporting is significant on a lot of fronts, including she doesn't expect Trump's team to appeal right. this. Pence's team has just said they're not going to appeal this. So Pence is going to talk before a grand jury. If you were the prosecutor questioning him before the grand jury about January 6th and the conversations with Trump leading up to that, what would you want to know? You know, well, I'm glad to be with you, too. Uh, I, I will tell you that I, I don't think there's any chance in the world he could have won an appeal if he moved forward. And so the prosecutor really has never been trying to get information about what he shared on the Senate floor while he was working. For, he, he simply wants to know what was Trump's what directions were you getting? What was the discussion? Was this a concerted plan? And I imagine there's probably some some interest in finding out were a lot of the ideas coming from Trump or these things that were being funneled through Trump by counsel. I mean, why? We, because of the intent. Well, it goes issue, it goes or? to Trump's intent, and it goes. You know, th there's nothing illegal about a client or and a former president talking uh, with lawyers and then exploring ideas. That's not illegal. What's illegal is if they do something, you know, with the intention to violate the law. And so is this going to be something where they were having an open discussion or is this something where he said, look, I don't care what the law is. I expect you to do this. This is where we're going, because that then tells more about Trump's state of mind at the time and his intent. Um, Penn still would retain the right, reserve the right not to answer some of those questions. Yeah, he would. I mean, he, he's got more spin on this than a basketball in the hands of the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, he, there's, this is the only guy I know that can lose a case and turn around and act like he won it. It was never a question about did they want to talk about the Senate floor and, the, and what was going on. Um, so he may try to say, look, I, you know, this is the speech and debate clause. There may be some, that's, that's going nowhere. I mean, the courts have been very clear. You know, you, you can't hide behind privileges to try to conceal criminal conduct. And so this is in the process of a grand jury hearing. It's yep. a very secret proceeding anyway. So there's already some protections for the court. They don't have to worry about this getting out of the public All right, domain. So let's talk about what's going on here right. in Georgia. The Fannie Willis here and, and what is going on in terms of her probe into uh, the, the call, the famous right. Trump call, sure. Sure. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, on this, you think that an indictment is coming soon. I do. I think Why? it's probably within the next month or two. Um, some of it is just the nature of the clock. I mean, we already know that the judge, there was this motion filed by Trump's lawyers to sort of disqualify the findings of the special grand jury and do away with those things and block that. Um, and, and I think that Fonnie's going to have to respond to that. The judge has given a timeline for that. But I also think she's just watching the clock. And we're getting closer into an election season. Uh, this is a trial that will take months, if not a year, to complete. There's no way, frankly, I think at this point we could ever be through with the trial before the election. You given do not the nature, think I do not think we could. I do not think we could. I mean, I just think it's going to be impossible. I mean, um, you already know, and if you just look at the New York case, the next hearing is in December. I mean, we're then in 24. Yeah. And so what? No, it gets right into right, the thick and, of it. And, and no judge, in my mind, is going to tell a candidate for president come off the campaign trail so that you can answer charges that the prosecutors could have brought years ago. Okay. And so I think that's going to be an interesting, and that's why I think it's, 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 she's on the, on the way to bringing some, some case. We will see, Michael. Thank you. Good Glad to be, to be in person with you. with you. Guys, back to you. All right, Michael and Poppy, thanks so much. This just in. Israeli Defense Forces say a rocket fire from Lebanon into Israel was just intercepted. It happened just after Israeli police stormed Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque for a second time. Sinan's Hadas Gol live in Jerusalem with more this morning. Hadas, hello. What's happening right now? 
Well, Don, it seems as though a barrage of rockets apparently is being launched from Lebanon into Israel. As we speak, I'm just getting alert after alert on my phone saying that sirens are going off in the western part of northern Israel near the border with Lebanon. This is an incredible escalation to what we've been seeing here over the past few days. The big question is who is behind these rockets, how many of them have been fired, whether they've caused any damage or injuries. But this is literally happening as I'm speaking. I can feel my phone vibrating with these alerts going off. Now, I do have to say a lot of people People, when they hear southern Lebanon, they think of Hezbollah. But in that part of southern Lebanon, southern western Lebanon, there's quite a few Palestinian refugee camps. So these could be coming from Palestinian militants. But these, in the Israeli military's eyes, anything that happens in southern Lebanon happens with the tacit approval of Hezbollah, of course, which is very much backed by Iran, a militant group in its own right. And whenever I speak to Israeli security officials, their biggest concern about security in this region is Hezbollah and is a major confrontation with Hezbollah. So there is a big question right now. Who is behind this? Will the Israeli military respond? And not even will they, but how will they respond? And could this escalate into the full-out war with Hezbollah that all the security officials I speak to are so concerned about? The reason being, Hezbollah's arsenal is much more powerful than what we see with the likes of the Hamas militant group from Gaza. This is the major concern. I cannot overestimate how this is the major concern for Israeli security officials is an all-out war with Hezbollah. So we're going to be watching this space very carefully, but as, I, as I'm seeing it right now, a barrage of rock it's coming from southern Lebanon into northern Israel as we speak, Don. All right, Hadass Gold joining us from Jerusalem. Keep an eye on it. Thank you, Hadass. Well, this morning, FBI and military officials are apologizing after a training mission went horribly wrong uh, and the wrong person was detained. The FBI says it was assisting the military with an exercise in a downtown Boston hotel, but because of what they're calling inaccurate information, they were sent to the wrong room. The hotel guest was handcuffed and interrogated for an hour before the agents realized their mistake. Natasha Bertrand joins us live at the Pentagon with more. My goodness, can you imagine being that person? Yeah, Poppy, just really remarkable here. So what we're told is that the FBI and U.S. Army Special Operations Command were conducting a training exercise in downtown Boston at the Revere Hotel there, and they ended up raiding the wrong hotel room and detaining someone who actually was not the person that was role-playing uh, in the scenario. Now, the FBI did tell us in a statement that the Boston division was assisting the military in this training exercise that was meant to, quote, simulate a situation their personnel might encounter encounter in a deployed environment and, quote, based on inaccurate information, they were mistakenly sent to the wrong room and detained an individual, not the intended role player. Thankfully, nobody was injured. Now, this all went down at the Revere Hotel in Boston, as I said, and police were called at around 1220 a.m. on Wednesday. Here is that initial uh, police call. By the Revere Hotel, two Delta pilots had people claiming to be FBI agents barge into their room and handcuff them to the bathroom. So as you heard there, there is a sense that these were actually two Delta pilots that were detained wrongfully by the FBI. We are still trying to get clarity on that. And we did reach out to Delta for comment, and they are investigating this as well. But the Army is apologizing this morning, saying that they, quote, would like to extend our deepest apologies to the individual who was affected by this training exercise, noting that it was just meant to enhance soldiers' skills. Bobby. Wow. Natasha, thank you for that update. Nothing like that rude awakening. Also, there is a new update in the legal battle between Fox News and Dominion voting systems. A judge now says that Dominion will be able to force Rupert Murdoch and his son, Lachlan Murdoch, as you see here, 
to testify. It's a billion-dollar defamation suit. The jury selection in the trial is scheduled to start one week from today if the two parties don't come to an agreement before then and settle. Joining us now is CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Oliver, I don't think it's a total surprise, but just the idea that they could force the chairman and his very powerful son to come and testify is so notable. And very bad news for the Murdochs. They did not want to testify in this trial. Fox lawyers basically did everything they could to try to persuade the judge not to compel them to come to Wilmington and have to testify in this case. The judge really didn't buy any of it. And throughout, we saw him being very skeptical of the arguments Fox put forward. And yesterday, he made it official. He said, basically, if Dominion wants these guys in court to testify, I'm not going to stand in their way. They just need to issue a subpoena, which it seems like they will. And they're going to be summoned to Wilmington, Delaware at some point in the next several weeks if this does go to to trial to testify in this case. This is the most fascinating. You could qualify it as a media story, but it's beyond that it has monumental repercussions through, you know, for First Amendment, so on and so forth. Um, Why is it so important for Dominion to have the Murdochs testify here? The buck ultimately at Fox stops with the Murdochs. I mean, they can put their executives in place at Fox News, but at the end of the day, Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, they call the shots. And we've actually seen this in a lot of the private emails and text messages that have come out. The Murdochs call the shots, and that's why Dominion wants them on uh, stand. And we've also seen Rupert Murdoch say he conceded in his deposition that some of his top hosts, people like Sean Hannity, uh, did endorse, those were, that's what Murdoch said, did endorse the election lies. And that's obviously different than reporting on election lies. And so Dominion is very interested in bringing them to the stand, letting them say that in front of a jury. Whether it was directed from the top. They yeah. Were there. Right. yeah. And we know those hosts are going to be testifying also. Yeah. What, how is Fox responding to this new development? <laughs> they're, they're, they're not happy. I'll read you what they said in the statement yesterday. Another statement blasting Dominion. They said, Dominion clearly wants to continue generating misleading stories from their friends in the media to distract from their weak case, demanding witnesses who had nothing to do with the challenge broadcast is just the latest example of their political crusade in search of a financial windfall. Obviously, a lot to digest there. Most legal experts would not say it's a weak case. That's just my question. Is <laughs> and, it a weak case? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think I've talked to a legal expert that said this is a weak case. They've all indicated it's a pretty strong, very strong defamation case. Mm-hmm. And like I said, at the end of the day, they might not ha- have their hands like in, in the dirt, you know, planting the, the plants or whatever. But they are responsible for what happens on Fox News. And that is why Dominion wants to put them on the stand. We'll be watching. I mean, it's, if it does happen, I know we're getting closer and closer. Yeah. Less time for a settlement. It'll be fascinating to watch. Oliver, thank you. Thank you, Oliver. So it's being called a political earthquake in North Carolina. Democratic state lawmaker flips parties, granting the GOP a veto-proof majority. White House now weighing in on that. Yeah, fascinating to watch. Also in Paris, protesters have just stormed into the BlackRock Investment Building. We're live on the ground as these demonstrations, as you can see here, are only intensifying. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is just into CNN. The video you are seeing here. These are protesters in Paris who have stormed the offices of the investment firm BlackRock in the middle of the city. In the video, you can see protesters are chanting, waving flags, carrying flares. Smoke is filling the building. It is the 11th day of nationwide demonstrations against the country's new pension bill. 
If you're unfamiliar, it raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. It has infuriated Parisians everywhere. CNN correspondent Melissa Bell is live in Paris. Melissa, can you tell us what you saw on the ground here? Well, this is where the main march is just preparing to get going, Caitlin. Let me give you, show you around. The union saying uh, just within the last hour or so that they stand united. They intend to continue their protest action. Uh, the 11th day here, there are strikes going on nationwide, and this march will get going uh, shortly. The government for now, Caitlin, saying it's going to stand firm. But you mentioned those images a moment ago. Those were rail worker union uh, workers who managed to occupy that building for about 10 minutes. And it's a reminder really of what we've seen the last couple of weeks. What had been largely peaceful protests since they began in January, really turning a lot more violent and a lot more confrontational with the police. And that's something we expect to see again today. 11,000 policemen uh, that are out across the country to try and keep the peace. But some groups determined uh, to turn these as violent as they can. For now, we're waiting uh, to go. The talks that took place between the unions last night and the government collapsed. Once again, both sides failing to agree with the government, vowing that it will push this retirement uh, age up from 62 to 64 and that it will not back down even in the face of these uh, repeated strikes and marches. Caitlin. Yeah, so far they say they're sticking with the plan. Melissa Bell, please keep an eye on those developments there on the ground. We'll check back in with you. Thank you. Just incredible to see those images out of Paris. Meantime, here in the U.S., a political earthquake bubbling in the North Carolina State House this morning after Representative Trisha Cotham, who was voted into office as a Democrat, won by 20 points as a Democrat, made a stunning announcement at GOP headquarters in Raleigh yesterday. Listen. I'm no longer a Democrat. The party that best represents me and my principles and what's best for North Carolina is the Republican Party. That move now grants the state GOP veto-proof control over both legislative chambers. Helen Sarfati joins us live from D.C. That means, right, that in the Tar Heel State, the Democratic governor there, Roy Cooper, um, they can override any veto by him. That's right, Poppy. These are very real political implications of her move and a very rare political defection. In announcing that she's going from Democrat to Republican, it gives much more control to the Republican Party in this state. Now, in her making this big political announcement, it was interesting to note that she somewhat blasted the Democrats in the state, saying she felt alienated from the Democratic Party, saying that she felt like it was unrecognizable to her, intimating essentially that the party she believes has gone too far to the left. Now, this does hand Republicans much more power in the state house. This now secures Republicans having a veto, veto-proof supermajority in the House. They already had that situation in the Senate. So this assures now that both chambers, the House and Senate and the North Carolina State House, has the ability to override vetoes from the Democratic governor. Um, this essentially sets Republicans up on a glide path to get their legislative agenda passed. And we'll see that power dynamic really start to shift very quickly. Republicans have already signaled that they intend to move on big ticket items like abortion rights, gun rights, uh, and the state's voting laws. So certainly big implications going forward. Poppy? What are Democrats saying? 
Well, they're uh, angry about this move and were surprised, even though it had been talking about for some time. Uh, a lot of Democrats saying that she misrepresented herself and her policies to her constituents that voted her into office by a big majority. Um, and it was also notable that the White House came out with a statement after this announcement, really acknowledging uh, the big legislative ticket items that are up for grabs that North Carolinians will have to vote on now. And with these new supermajorities, it makes it much harder for Democrats to stop some of them. Uh, the White House saying bedrock American freedoms are at stake in votes in North Carolina. And they're calling on those who are in the state house to vote, they say, their consciences rather than the politics of the moment. Fascinating. Sunlin, thank you very much. Don. All right. From North Carolina, we go to Tennessee. This morning, lawmakers in that state are set to vote on whether to kick three Democrats out of the state house. Republicans accuse the lawmakers of breaking House rules when they led this protest for gun reform on the chamber floor. This was just a week ago. So yesterday on this very program, Justin Jones, one of the lawmakers facing potential expulsion, slammed Republicans. It's morally insane that a week after a mass shooting took six precious lives in my community here in Nashville, um, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, their first action is not to take action to rein in this proliferation of weapons of war in our streets, but it's to expel their colleagues for standing with our constituents. Out now live to CNN reporter Ryan Young in Nashville. Ryan, what's the latest here? Don, just a lot of emotion here. I can tell you, even since the last time we joined you on this show, people have been showing up in mass to start this protest. If you look behind me over here, you can see the folks that are starting to gather. We've also had state troopers arrive here. That normally happens when protesters are going to be outside. But look, folks are interested to see what happens with Justin Jones, Gloria Johnson, and Justin Pearson, all going through this situation in terms of the fact that they could be expelled from this House body at this point. Of course, they took to the floor, they used that bullhorn, and they thought that was not a part of decorum. So as you see all the folks who are gathering, despite all this rain, the emotions run high, because when you think about this, you're talking about six victims who were killed in a school. Emotions have been running high because, of course, people want to see some change, and maybe some of these high-powered uh, weapons pulled off the street. The other side of this, the Republicans are saying it was not the way to do it. They were not um, given the opportunity to go up and use that bullhorn in chambers. A lot of conversation that this could happen later on in the uh, in the afternoon because of all the House resolutions they have to go through first. Don? One, one more thing, uh, Ryan. Representative Justin Jones is actually filing a police report over an incident on the floor. Remind us of what happened, please. Yeah, the drama hasn't stopped here, Don. And, and again, the emotion just spilling over on the floor. In fact, take a watch at this video and see what happened as there was a sort of a tussle right there on the floor. Yeah, Justin Lafferty and uh, Justin Jones apparently had a scuffle over that phone. Um, he wants to pull out a police, police report on him. But look, today the focus on is whether or not these three lawmakers will be pulled from their jobs and their seats after going on and having that uh, emotional outburst there in the middle of the floor. As again, 
protesters are gathering here. Don, this could be a very long day here. This hasn't happened very often here in Tennessee, so people are wondering how this is going to play out. Yeah, very long and obviously a very rainy one as well. Ryan Young in Nashville this morning. Thank you, Ryan. Well, to New Zealand we go. Former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern delivering a deeply personal farewell speech on Wednesday. Ardern announced her surprising resignation, you'll remember, in January. She said she had no more in the tank after five years of leadership. She was the world's youngest female head of government when she became the prime minister at age 37 and only the second world leader to give birth in office. In her final speech to parliament, she got emotional as she sent a very encouraging message to those hoping to lead the country in the future. Now, I cannot determine what will define my time in this place, but I do hope I've demonstrated something else entirely that you can be anxious, sensitive, kind, and wear your heart on your sleeve. You can be a mother or not. You can be an ex-Mormon or not. You can be a nerd, a crier, a hugger. You can be all of these things. And not only can you be here, you can lead just like me. I mean, I think we all loved that, love that so much. Obviously, I love the fact that she said, guys, you know, you can be a lot of different things at once and lead. But what I love the most is that she walked away and said, I did this. It took a lot out of me. Now I'm going to do something different with my life. You don't have to always be in the spotlight to be deeply meaningful. I mean, she shocked the world when she announced that she was stepping down. It, it just was remarkable back in January when that happened. Well, she made history, and uh, as we, we talked about it um, yesterday when it comes to Tiger Woods, your priorities sometimes yeah. they just change and you move on and you yes. want to do different things. You don't always have to do the same thing for your entire life or your entire career. D totally. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. yeah. On her party, what it means for her party. Her party was flagging the polls. We'll see. Thank you, Poppy. Also, we're learning today, NPR has now been hit with a state-affiliated media label. That's from Twitter. It puts it on par with foreign propaganda outlets. The broadcaster is not happy. We'll tell you how they're responding next. And as we go to break, right, the four astronauts who will lead the first crewed moon mission in five decades, they made their last debut, late night debut, I should say. There they are on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Jeremy, uh, elephant in the room, you're a Canadian. Um, <laughs> which is, and, and that's not why we made you sit at the end. <laughs> you're just the biggest guy out here. So, uh, how, how did this happen for you? How did you end up at NASA? Well, there's, there's probably a couple of reasons. You could pick whichever one you like. I, you know, if something goes wrong in this mission, then, then NASA can blame Canada. I think it's probably... <laughs> Well, Canada will just say, sorry. <laughs> this morning, NPR says it is disturbed by Twitter's decision to label the public broadcaster as state-affiliated media. Elon Musk's social media platform is now grouping NPR in with foreign propaganda outlets like the Russian government-owned and run RT and Sputnik and the Chinese Communist Party's People's Daily Newspaper. The CEO of NPR is calling the decision unacceptable, adding, quote, NPR and our member stations are supported by millions of listeners who depend on us for the independent, fact-based journalism that we provide. NPR says it receives less than 1% of its annual funding from federal sources. The vast majority it come from, comes from sources like corporate sponsorships, NPR membership fees. 
Joining us now is CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, I know when NPR first saw this label, they thought it was just a mistake by Twitter. It's not. Yeah. No, it's not a mistake. I uh, heard from their spokesperson Tuesday night when this first showed up, and they said they were completely blindsided by it. They reached out to Twitter, but they never really got a response. But I think what this represents is a broader effort by Elon Musk to go after certain media companies that he wants to target. So if you talk about state-owned media, we actually do have a state-funded media arm in the U.S., Voice of America, but they don't have a label. Whereas NPR has a label, and then you also have PBS, the public broadcaster, with a very similar funding model that doesn't have a label. So this is clearly an effort by Elon Musk and Twitter to go after NPR. So, it, it, so this is happening. And then you also have um, Elon Musk removing the New York Times blue check. Is he turning off the broader public or a broader, bigger audience than just people who agree with him and perhaps even trolls? I think so. And I think the biggest risk is... If you go after certain media outlets without a set of parameters, you can lose a lot of trust in the platform, especially because people leverage Twitter in emergency situations. You know, if there's a flood in your town, a natural disaster, if there's a major political situation, you want to be able to go on the platform and know that the stuff that you're seeing is authoritative. If Elon Musk is going to sort of cherry pick which outlets get amplified, which ones have labels, he risks people not being able to trust Twitter at critical times. And that's where Twitter does its best where it gets its most engagement. Yeah, and you see Elon Musk also on Twitter weighing in on the decisions he's making, like this one with NPR. But, you know, there, what Twitter's policy is, is that state-affiliated means it's an outlet where the state, the government, exercises control over editorial content through financial resources, direct or indirect political pressures, and or control over production. That's obviously not NPR. NPR does great journalism. They cover the White House. They cover the Hill. They cover everything. They do great work. And so this idea that Twitter is doing this to them, do they leave Twitter? What are NPR's options here? I don't think NPR is going to leave Twitter, and I'll tell you why. A couple of days ago, I scrolled through Twitter for hours, Caitlin, and I screenshotted every single news outlet that's still running ads on Twitter. I found almost a dozen mainstream news outlets, including The Athletic, which is owned by The New York Times, days after Elon Musk removed their verified checkmark. And so I think media outlets are in this really difficult position where they, of course, feel frustrated by being singled out or their peers being singled out. But Twitter continues to be a huge platform for them to reach new audiences and to promote new products. I don't think most reporters and outlets are going to unilaterally stop using Twitter, even though these antics are crazy. Can we talk real quickly? uh, I know it's very important, but we only have a short amount of time about um, Lemonade, because Lemonade um, is also owned by ByteDance, which, you know, people have problems with TikTok because they're owned by ByteDance. But Lemonade is very popular and it, it is being promoted and being used as well. It's huge, Don. And the thing that's important to remember is that TikTok grew its dominance here very under the radar by buying a lot of paid marketing on apps like Snapchat and Facebook. Lemonade is coming in and it's able to gain a lot of traction, even though it can't leverage all of those same tactics in the same way, because there's a lot more scrutiny on its parent ByteDance, which, as you mentioned, is also the parent to TikTok. Lemonade is kind of like Instagram meets Pinterest. It's catered to Gen Z. But we're watching it, Don, because so many national security concerns about the sister app TikTok. And a lot of people are just sort of floored that ByteDance is able to come in and launch something just as potentially big as TikTok at this really crazy time. 
time where tensions between the U.S. and China are escalating. Mm. Yeah, we'll see how the administration and Congress responds. Sarah Fisher, thank you for joining us this morning. Here we go all over again. Thank you, Sarah. Weekly jobless numbers out just moments ago. We're going to break them down next. Also, a new warning about staff shortages at several big airports. What the FAA is doing to try to save your summer travel plans. Remember last year? So, released just moments ago, I'm checking the weekly job numbers, but I don't really need to check because we have <laughs> CNN's business correspondent, Paul Solomon. Right I just here. put it down. I'm like, why am I going to check? She's I can kind of handle that for you. <laughs> yeah, what do you got for us? Good morning. Okay, so these numbers just crossing a short time ago, about 12 minutes ago. So, this is a look at how many Americans are filing for unemployment benefits for the first time. So, this is a proxy for layoffs, right? So, what we see is that uh, the number of initial claims was 228,000, and the level from the week prior, that is for the week ending April 1st, I should say. The level for the week prior was actually revised up by 48,000 from 198,000 to 246,000. I want to put this in context based on what we're seeing here. And you can see that we had been sort of hovering in the 200,000 level for quite some time. So this is a bit of a jump. But Goldman Sachs actually put out a research note yesterday saying, don't be surprised if we see a jump because of some seasonal factors saying that uh, this is really the end of a technical distortion if we do see a jump, which we now have, rather than a sharp jump in the true pace of claims. Let me tell you why this is so important. In this environment where we've honestly all been waiting for the shoe to drop in terms of when are we going to start to see some weakness in the labor market, the weekly jobless claims is the first look, right? Because all of the other data that we get from the government about the labor market, it's monthly. This is a weekly look at how many people are filing for unemployment benefits. And so this would be the first place that you would start to see some weakness. I want to show you also all of the companies. I mean, how often have we talked about all of the companies announcing layoffs, right? Yeah. There have been a lot. Oh, wow. Exactly. But do you notice anything when you look at all of those companies? Mainly tech. Yeah. Mainly tech. tech. A lot of them are big companies. Uh, some of them are not, but mainly tech. And that's what we're seeing, that uh, where we're still seeing really strong job creation, it's small firms, it's medium-sized firms. Uh, the layoffs are really concentrated so far in tech and financial industry. So uh, really quite a difference we're seeing. That's but interesting. Can we put that back up? I'm sorry. Can we just can we put that back up and look at it? Because it's like big companies we saw, like IBM. Um, Amazon, I believe, Amazon is on there. Amazon is on there. Those are, yeah, Boeing, those are big deal. Yeah, those Meta. Of course, Disney, definitely notable. And Poppy, you're in Atlanta. You're there for a reason because you were going to be interviewing Jamie Dimon. I mean, and Rohel has just noted we've got another report coming out tomorrow. That's going to be significant. It's the last one we're getting before that Fed meeting. You know, I wonder how he's viewing all of this because obviously he is such a leading voice and and what their analysis of this means. For sure. I mean, he's he is one of the most prominent voices, not only on Wall Street, just on the economy around the world. And he came out with his annual letter that is read by everyone on the street this week. And in that annual letter, which Jamie Dimon writes every word of himself, which is pretty rare for CEOs, he he talks about, Caitlin, uh, a pretty good economy, but in his words, some storm clouds ahead. So I want to know from him, what are those storm clouds? What do they look like? Are we going to get this debt ceiling thing resolved or are we going to default as a country? He's super worried about Ukraine and thinks it's so pressing. Um, so we're going to talk about all that. And then at first time we're going to hear from him on the banking crisis. Like, what do we do so we don't have another SVB and signature bank collapse? What regulation works? He's talked about some whack-a-mole, his word, regulation, politically motivated regulation. So what does he think the system needs? So 
see what he thinks. Very timely, Poppy. I mean, it's the perfect time for, for this. Yeah, Can't wait to you. see it. You'll be back tomorrow, right? And we'll talk see about it. See you tomorrow. It. Yeah, see you tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll see you in a little bit later on in the show. And thanks to Rahel. Yeah, those answers from Jimmy Diamond will be fascinating. We'll see what he says. Also, this morning yeah. we are tracking a new warning that is coming out about staffing shortfalls at some of the busiest airports. What does it mean for your summer travel plans? Plus, White Sox closer Liam Hendricks celebrating a victory that has nothing to do with baseball, calling it one of the most emotional things he's ever done. All right, welcome back. It is time for the morning moment, and this morning it's a good one. Chicago White Sox closer Liam Hendricks is celebrating a major victory but one that has nothing to do with being on the field. Hendricks has just completed his final round of chemotherapy treatments. He had been battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for months, but yesterday he posted this video of himself ringing what is known as the victory bell. <laughs> yeah. You can just hear it. It is his expressions there. He thanked his family, he thanked his friends, he thanked his medical team, saying in the post, quote, these past five months have been the quickest and slowest of my life. Being able to ring this victory bell has been one of the most emotional things I've ever done. On opening day, Hendricks was listed on the 15-day injured list. It's a sign maybe he could return to the team before June. Regardless, we're all just so thrilled for him. It doesn't make you choke up. I mean, just listening to it, it does, and seeing his expression. Good for him. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yes. What, what were we saying yesterday, Don? Are you, like, Poppy, you, you read my mind. Help. You got it. Right? What, it, it solidifies what is important. We think so many things are important. If you don't have your health, then mm -hmm. what else, right? Your health and your family, your loved ones. So, yep. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. All right. New this morning, spring break travel, which we are not on right now, but... A lot of people are heading on it. It's at its peak. There is already a warning about cancellations and delays this summer. The cause, a shortage of air traffic controllers. Pete Montine joins us live from Reagan National Airport. Not again. Not again. <laughs> not, not again. You know, this is a big admission from the FAA, Poppy, that hiring for air traffic controllers is backlogged as a result of the pandemic. But now the idea is to avoid cancellations and delays this summer by having airlines scale back on the number of flights that they operate. American Airlines says it's going to do it. JetBlue and Delta say they're considering it. This is an air traffic controller shortage and passengers are going to pay for it. The latest challenge for your next trip is not enough air traffic controllers to keep flights moving. In a new notice, the Federal Aviation Administration is allowing airlines to scale back summer service at New York's three main airports, warning staffing shortfalls could amplify delays by 45%. We need more controllers. Richard Santa of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association says staffing shortages swelled during the pandemic due in part to retirements and a hiring freeze. A union analysis shows the number of air traffic controllers has dropped 10% in the last decade. The FAA says nationwide, two in every 10 controller jobs are empty. A key air traffic control facility in New York is roughly one half staffed. We are critically staffed in most of our air traffic control facilities. The new admission comes after airlines delayed more than a half million flights last summer and put some of the blame on the FAA. It was tight before the pandemic and it, they don't have enough people today and they need more. 
more. We are continuing to hire. FAA Acting Administrator Billy Nolan says the agency plans to add 1,500 new controllers this year and 1,800 next year. The agency says last June it was flooded with almost 58,000 applications to become an air traffic controller, though its training academy remains backlogged. The relief can't come soon enough for airlines and passengers with another huge travel rush on the horizon. The system doesn't have the capacity. We don't have enough air traffic controllers. Right now, American Airlines is contacting passengers it says will be impacted by these cuts. Delta and JetBlue say they will announce their cuts sometime later this month. There is one way out here for airlines to try and blunt the impact on you. It's a process called upgaging. That means swapping out the original airplane that an airline would fly with a larger one. But the bottom line here, Poppy, is that this all comes at a cost to consumers because it's an FAA issue. Wow. Not welcome news, but thank you for it, Pete Montin. We appreciate it. Meantime, take a look at these protests in Paris carrying flares and storming an office building as nationwide protests continue. More news straight ahead. It's time to update some of our top stories here. We've been following around the world this morning, starting with video that you have to see. It's out of Paris. Protesters in the French capital storming the BlackRock investment building with flares. They say that they're protesting the government's pension reform plan. Almost go Israeli defense forces confirming dozens of rockets were fired from Lebanon toward Israel this morning. They say at least one has been intercepted by the Iron Dome. Israel now closing its northern airspace for civil aviation. Also here in the U.S., three Democratic state lawmakers in Tennessee are awaiting their fate today. Republicans are set to hold a vote on expelling them from the state's House of Representatives after their protest following that shooting in Nashville. All that and more we will be following all day on CNN, CNN's News Central. Thank you for joining us. CNN's News Central covering all of these stories, and it starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.